Hey everyone, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today with Mr. Jonathan Pajot. Jonathan runs an excellent podcast slash YouTube channel called The Symbolic World. Is the YouTube channel called the same? I think it's just my name, This, but it's known as The Symbolic World. Gotcha. So Jonathan, we've been talking about this for a while. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you've been on my channel uh, once. We had a great discussion. And so I thought, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy your work. Um, I discovered you through Peterson. And uh, yeah, I'm an av avid listener to your podcast. I read your brother's book as well, uh, which I think we talked a little bit about. So mm. I think a lot of these ideas you explore in the symbolic world actually have a lot of parallels to Austrian economics. So there's these these two worlds of meaning um, that that seem to touch in different ways. So maybe we'll mm. explore some of that today. But I'd like to open with the lightweight question <laughs> of what is the meaning of meaning? So we hear this word used a lot, and I, it just seems like a bit of a black box to me. And I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I'm gonna. So I'm going to take you in a place in a like in a space that's probably a little far from the what is money question or maybe not I don't know, but I think that <clears throat> one of the the best way to understand meaning ultimately is something like purpose, but not just purpose but transformation, and so all the ancient schools like all the religious uh, groups but not just that Plato Socrates they didn't see meaning or they didn't see understanding the world as just something you did to to you know to spend time or to 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 know how to do certain things but they saw it really as a kind of a mystical transformation of the person into more so you can see meaning as in a smaller sense as purpose towards goals but ultimately that purpose has to be towards something like you know, like liberation, like freedom, freedom from your passions, freedom from all the things that weigh you down inside you. Uh, mostly an interior freedom is usually the way it's presented in all the religions, all the traditions, but also, like I said, uh, you know, in Plato or in the in the Greek philosophers. So I think that that's, that's where meaning really hits the, the road, which is that it's not just something we do, but it's a direction we take. It's a, it's a aiming, it's a purpose. Mm. So, so there's this aiming towards a valued end of some kind. And then I guess engaging in the transformation necessary to move towards that valued end. Cause this isn't just an aim through space. Clearly it's through space, through time, um, through personal. You would have to see it as embedded as these embedded purposes is the best way to understand it. And so, depending on where you are and depending on how much capacity you have or how much you're willing to go, then that, that purpose leads all the way to, you know, whatever, like pure liberation, like Buddha nature, you know, the being one in Christ, there are different, different ways to talk about it. I think for sure as a Christian, it's to be united with God. That's the ultimate purpose. And then within those purposes are embedded smaller purposes. Uh, and then the mechanism of purpose or the mechanism of meaning can also be distorted. So, for example, like a coke addict or a, 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 an addict is extremely purposeful, is extremely, has a lot of meaning, meaning action. He acts in order to, he will do anything to reach 
his goal. But then that meaning or that purpose is ultimately self-destructive. So, so you can understand, we can see the mechanisms of meaning even in war or even in anything, even things that are horrible. But ultimately there's a, I think there's an objective pattern of meaning, which if the patterns are embedded properly, then they fit into each other towards, towards something uh, which is transcendent, you know, something which is something like, you know, living in the love of God or something like that. Interesting. So <clears throat> I'm going to try to make a couple of connections here, perhaps. Uh, it sounds like in this pursuit of purpose and transformation, one of the objectives is to develop virtue or attain virtue such that you can become uh, fitted to that purpose. So you're, you're, you're trying to create virtue to become, to achieve whatever this is. And just to draw a parallel to Austrian economics here, which describes value as the relevance to goal-directed action. So one simple example I like to give here is this table that I'm using to support my laptop to record this episode with you is valuable to me because it's relevant to my goal-directed action of creating yeah. this episode with you. Whereas if you paid someone $100 to jump over the table, for instance, it would simultaneously be an impediment to them. It would be an obstacle to their goal, right? If they're trying to jump over the table, it's in their way, so to speak. So it could be valuable to me and um, not valuable to someone else. Yeah. Um, this, and a lot, again, there we, we mentioned the $100. This is like uh, in the sphere of socioeconomics, at least, a lot of this relevance discovery and realization is being communicated through the price. So I guess I would like to understand how, what is value then in that perspective? Is value similar to meaning um, in the symbolic sense? You mean value like monetary value or value like physical value? Well, because there's the, there's the value of spending time together and then there's mm -hmm. the value of an object in terms of what it goes if I was going, what it's worth in terms of trade with something else, like compared to other objects. Is that what you mean? Like in an economic sense? Well, what I'm sort <clears throat> of talking out, thinking out loud here with you is that I think they're kind of the same because even the value of spending time with your family, like you would, you attain that value because you have bought yourself freedom through work and savings. You know, this, there's the old saying time is money. But as a, mm -hmm. we explore a lot on this show as well, money is also time. It's kind of like our marketplace mechanism for trading time. So I, I just wanted to get your definition of value really and see see how it connects maybe between these two worlds. Yeah. Well, I really do see value very much. Ultimately, for myself, I see value as those things which will lead you towards the ultimate goal right? Which is something like freedom, something like salvation. Some, there's different ways of describing it, but you know, that it's an actual transformation of the person. Uh, and so I think that that's what makes something valuable. Now that's an, in a kind of objective way, but then those mechanisms of value can also be applied to other things, like you said, which is that 
they can also be applied in in a sense of just in a mimetic sense which is that some things are valuable because we want because in our desire to transform ourselves we look at to others as examples and so at to, in looking to others as examples then we want to mimic them in order to reach what they are or what they have mm-hmm. and therefore certain things now start to be valuable to us because they'll give us the means to attain that and so like a Gucci bag is not made any better than a bag that you'll pay 10% of the price for, but because it has installed itself in a hierarchy of desirability, you know, by people who want to imitate each other, then someone is willing to pay that Gucci bag becomes very valuable in order to exist in that hierarchy. And so it, 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 I mean, it ha- it depends on what the what it is that we're valuing. So, for example, like a, a monk will do the opposite. A monk will sacrifice all his worldly goods or as many worldly goods as possible in order to attain his goal, which is something like union with God or something like that. So it's not a it's not it's not um yeah it's not it's not a it can be applied to different things. And different hierarchies and some of them are objectively better i think than others you think some value hierarchy value hierarchies are objectively better than others yeah definitely there's i don't think there's any way around that because there are some the value hierarchies you know it's like i mean it, for example like there's a there could be a value hierarchy in uh, how addictive a drug is and then you work towards making drugs more addictive and therefore the highly addictive drug is the most valuable uh and it's the one that will make you the most that will make you reach the most profit or make the most money but then it's a it's an it's an objectively uh it's objectively less interesting you know it can still help you understand hierarchies of values but it's a mm-hmm. it's objectively not as good as even like a you know, of the value of a ba- of a good basketball player would be a better, you know, or something mm-hmm. that's even tri- it's still somewhat trivial, but is not is not as bad. Let's say, is that axis between good and bad value hierarchies? Is it selfishness or selflessness? Because I'm just thinking about the seven sins; they all seem to be selfish qualities, whereas something more like love or compassion tends to be a bit more selfless. Is that what determines the goodness of a value hierarchy? Um, well, not necessarily like things are good. I think the way you said it in the, at the beginning, you know, things are good in their own hierarchy towards a purpose. Mm. And so for example, a good apple, it has nothing to do with selfishness or selflessness. Like a, someone has a very, very good, tasty apple then that apple will be more valuable than the one that tastes like, you know, it doesn't taste good. Mm. So I, I think that it, it has more to do exactly the way you presented it, which is, which is something like goal oriented hierarchies. Mm. And also like a tool, a tool is not as it's good for different reasons. Like it's good because it helps you reach an, something else, but the, the apple is if to have some kind of pleasure than the, it's closer to the, to the goal itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, I guess I'm trying to determine here when we're setting these aims in the value hierarchy, I get what you're saying that 
the goodness, I think I get what you're saying. The goodness is its <laughs> fittedness to purpose, something like yeah. that. Like, yeah, there's a good shovel for digging holes and a spoon is not as good for digging holes, something like that. Yeah. And there's a good shovel for digging snow and there's a good shovel for digging sand. And those are not right. the same. You don't want right. to have one for the other. So is there, so that makes sense to me. Uh, is there a, a spectrum of good or bad as far as where we're setting those aims? Of course, I think so. Yeah, just like I said, I think that you could have a hierarchy of addictive drugs, which would be completely coherent, mm -hmm. uh, but that the aim itself is not good. Like you could, you could be the most efficient mass murderer that exists, and then you could have a hierarchy of goods mm -hmm. in in the hierarchy of mass murderers. But that's obviously not. That's obviously a a hierarchy which is not uh, the aim itself is a problem. Interesting. There, um, I've been reading Rothbard recently, and he has this universal system of ethics that's really based on just acknowledging and respecting individual self-ownership, um, which is to just say that the more your actions respect the you know natural boundaries of others, that you don't infringe on other people's rights, you don't coerce them, you don't uh, engage in violence, that that is, I guess, kind of where maybe the ought and the is touch, because we, we he draws this line of property. So the, and the fundamental axiom of it is that each individual owns themselves, right? Like only you can move your arm, only I can move my arm. And then from that, we extend our self-ownership into the world to create value, right? Plant garden, build a business, start a YouTube channel, whatever it is. Um, what is your thought about it? Because I've heard other, you know, I, yeah, guess I don't, is, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I don't think that exists. Like, I don't think anybody owns themselves completely. I think, I think that most people are owned by several things. Uh, and there's usually a competition of ownership on their being. Mm -hmm. Some of them are good. Right. And so you can be, you can be somewhat owned when I use the word own, I mean, let's say directed in the sense that your actions are dependent on those other people's actions. And so your children, you own your children. I mean, not in a, not in the way, not in like a, the same way you own a table, but it's mm -hmm. like you direct them. They, they live inside your rules and everything. Uh, and then that all, then that scales into society, but it also scales to other things. So it's like the, an advertiser is trying to own you or try to own at least a part of you because they want you to act in accordance to their will. And there's a million things competing for your will. And most people who think that they own themselves are, are usually, they're not aware of how much they are, let's say, uh, a slave to these whims that we have that don't necessarily come from us. You know, and even in your own even when you're alone with yourself and you find yourself in a, you, you find your own desires and your own uh, patterns of being, you'll find that those come from somewhere and that they, they're probably something your parents gave you or you're, you're, you're owned by your, your parents, even though it's kind of inevitable. We, we don't exist. The, the idea of like a single unit that's completely like closed off from everything else is, I don't think that that's possible. We, we, we exist in 
we are constantly are existing in others and through others and they exist in us and we have this kind of symbiotic relationship with others. And so they own aspects of us and we own aspects of them or we try to, uh, and it's sometimes for the good, sometimes for bad, you know? So, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're super discouraged and then your coach or whatever, like gives you courage. Like, where does that come from? Mm. And then you know that it didn't come from you. It's you're actually at that moment, you're, you're submitting yourself to their will and for a good, for, for good. And you're going to win the game because of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't think that that's plausible. Like the idea of this self ownership. So does that on the free will determinism debate, then where do you fall there? Because even in the instance you gave the coach encouraging the player, the player has to choose to be encouraged. There has to be some reciprocity in the relationship, right? It can't, the coach can't just inject courage in the players. No, it's a, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a back and forth. Uh, and also it's like the free will determinism debate is one, which I don't, I, I tend to stay away from to a certain mm -hmm. extent, because I, at least for the, from the Christian, at least from the perspective, the Orthodox perspective, there's a sense in which there's only one free will and the, the free will, the only free will you have is to, let's say to in the moment, you know, move closer to God. Like that's mm -hmm. the only free will. All other wills are contingent on circumstance and are contingent on all kinds of things that you're not even aware of inside you. You have all these things pulling your strings that you don't know about, mm -hmm. right? All these, all these threads pulling on you in every direction. And you might, you probably have no idea even where those come from. And so, you know, and, and if you're attentive to yourself, you'll also notice that you are several people inside you. Mm -hmm. There's not just one of you. And there is a manner in which we can become one. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's free will. Like free will is becoming one is becoming is, is moving towards Christ in you is a way to say it moving mm -hmm. towards the divine logos, which animates you. Uh, but that then has very little to do with, um, how can I say this? Uh, it's not the same kind of free will that people talk about, like the, the idea that you can that you can self-master yourself and just kind of uh, act in the world with will, you know, the way that 19th century kind of occultists talked about it, like this idea of will before all, you know, it's a different way of seeing it. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I hear you on each of us containing kind of a multitude of I guess you call them sub personalities perhaps, or programs, you know, a lot of this we get from our parents. Um, and it's all, yeah, I, I guess the software analogy sort of makes sense. It's like everyone's running their own programs and we, we share these programs through communication and interaction. And then we're mutually shaping one another um, through those interactions. Where do you see the role of incentives in this uh shaping of say character and human action do you mean like it depends do you mean incentives in terms of like uh kind of like paying for work or something yeah we like could that? focus on we could focus on material incentives um yeah so you could think of compensation i guess is the most basic form yeah um I think that here again, like in terms of a, in terms of really like a, in terms of the ultimate Christian point of view, you would think of incentives as tools, 
and that tools towards something more important, right? And so you 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 need compensation, you need money, you need uh, things, you need objects um, in order to accomplish higher goals. And so there's a sense in which the incentives will definitely be part of it, but they won't necessarily uh, lead you towards those goals. They can actually be uh, they can actually be obstacles to them if you're not careful. Right. That's the that's the whole idea of Christ kind of warning against riches, because the, one of the difficulties we've seen, and I mean, every, we've met a lot of people, met people like that, is is that at some point, sometimes the incentives become the thing itself. And so mm-hmm. people act in order to get money or to get riches, but the riches become the goal in themselves, which is a very strange thing, you know, uh, because riches are not like riches don't. Riches are just tools towards other things. Yeah. Um, so um, kind of mistaking, calling a means an end or something like that, where instead of using the thing as a means, people start to make the accumulation of money as an end in itself. Yeah. Or, I mean, different things as well. Like the, it, obviously there are different levels of that, but in general, the idea that we're going to kind of find ultimate satisfaction in these things that we accumulate mm-hmm. is, is obviously a, it's obviously a delusion. We all fall into it. I mean, I'm not any more innocent than, than others that we all kind of fall into it. We think that if we get this thing, then it's going to bring us some satisfaction. And usually the satisfaction doesn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Like it's there, but it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't last as long as we wish it would. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So I've, you know, I think incentives drive a lot of human action, whether we want to admit that or not, like maybe not to ourselves, we, we, and probably everyone's trying to shoot for some higher ideal, but we are very much shaped by our material incentives. And I think that is abundantly obvious when you consider just how much human action is actually driven by money, for instance, right? People spend most of their lives working, they're working for money, et cetera. So uh, I want to ask you this. You've described, and please. But I would say, I would say, like I think that that's also a very modern uh, disease. Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea of working for money, I think, is a modern aberration because, <clears throat> like the ancient uh, artisan, for example, you know, didn't work for money. There was mm-hmm. there was more value in the. <clears throat> Sorry, there was more value in the actual accomplishment of the good that they were doing uh-huh. than in the money. And you can see it because like the medieval guild is something that almost nobody understands today because it's totally contradictory to the free market system, which is that medieval guilds would control the price of of their services and would control the access to their skill in order to preserve quality. And so the artisan would find joy in the thing that they're doing even more than the idea of kind of, of becoming rich. And I think that that's something which the idea that working for money is what we do is really, I think, a very recent phenomenon mm. in human history, you know, because the, the hunter doesn't just hunt for food. The hunter hunts because of the joy of the hunt and the joy of being with his brothers and you know the yeah the same with the women who stay at home and cook and sit together and and work they they don't just do it for monetary gain or for sustenance they right. there's a whole other aspect which motivates them yeah so this 
perhaps segues well into the next question um, because you have people, the ideal situation is when you can engage in an activity that pays you, but also satisfy something you find valuable, you enjoy, right? To make yeah. your, your passion, your profession kind of thing. That's an ideal situation. Um, is this related to human beings being the intermediaries between heaven and earth? Um, and, and maybe you could unpack that a bit too. People, these terms, heaven and earth, I think a lot yeah, of yeah, materialists the are they talking about. Yeah. They think the planet <laughs> and then the magical place you go after you die or something like that. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, uh, and so, I mean, I don't know, I mean, maybe I can unpack that and we'll see how it relates to what you're asking, but the idea of, of heaven and earth, the best way for materialists to understand that or for a modern person to understand it is something like that there are patterns in the world and then there are there's potential for those patterns to exist. Mm -hmm. And so there are, let's say, an, easy, an easier way to understand is that, for example, there's a pattern of, of emergent uh, properties for a, a coherent being to exist, right? And so... Those patterns, you can find them as much in a city as in a person, as in a cell, right? And so you can find patterns of how many things come together and exist as one. And so the, the pattern itself would be something like heaven or logos or, you know, name, you know, there's different ways of describing it. And then the different levels of being that embody those patterns, and then they would be something like different levels of earth until you come down to potentiality, like bodies that you move into potentiality. Um, and so that's really the, the way to understand it. Now, those patterns have different, there are different kinds of patterns. And those patterns are, are also the hardest part for people to understand or the part, hardest part for materialists to accept is that those patterns are intelligent. Mm. They're, they're not just random patterns. They're ultimately something like intelligent patterns. Um, like an, the pattern of a city has, a, has an intelligence in itself. Mm -hmm. which is beyond our intelligence, you know, because it, you can write to the city and the city will answer. You can say mm -hmm. that it's Mary in the office writing the letter, but if Mary was gone, there would be somebody else answering instead of Mary and it would still be the, the city that's answering you. So there are these intelligent patterns and they're, they're, they are their embodiments. So that's the easiest way for people to kind of understand, let's say, heaven and earth. Mm. Is this related to emergence and emanation? where um, emergence is kind of like the variation coming from the bottom up and then emanation is the, I guess, the principle selecting for whatever emerges that most closely resonates with it, perhaps something like that. And through the conformity of these two things, we have existence, I guess. That's a good way to explain it. That's the way, at least that I, that I like to explain it. There's a, a lot of people are talking about emergence today. It's very popular and it's in all the fields, mm -hmm. you know, because people realize that, that when things come together in a certain manner, then a being emerges, you know? And so you can see things acting incoherent in a co together. And then, then out of that appears a being, right? You're made of, of all these cells. Like you have all these living cells inside you, but nonetheless, they cohere together to create a, a being. Um, and so definitely this is what it's about. Now, of course, not a lot of people today or fewer people today want to talk about eminent emanation or intelligence coming down. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, like you said, especially if you see it as, if you see it, you can see it in your own life as selection, for example, mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to understand it. If you see that you do that, right. You, 
you will, you know, so you have a, you have a bunch of shapes in front of you, but you need a glass, you need something to hold water. And so you will reach out and then you will select the, the pattern, which is closest to the one you want. And not only that, but then you can start to form it in the world. So once you recognize it, but you also can adjust it and you can create it, you could say. Um, so it's a, it's a good way to understand that, but the idea would be that ultimately this is happening even beyond your individuality. Like I said, a city can also select. Yeah. So a city can select certain behaviors and those behaviors become the ones that make you participate in the city. And then if you're outside of it, then you get ejected or you get put in jail or you get a fine mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then if you, if you embody those patterns, then you get rewarded by, you know, getting nice roads and, you know, you pay your taxes and you do all these mm-hmm. things. And so it creates this, it creates uh, a being, which is mm-hmm. New York, or, I mean, mm-hmm. it could be your family. It could be, there are all kinds of levels of beings, it could be a basketball team or all kinds of stuff. So you're describing, um, I guess this emergent, I guess what we're saying is a collective intelligence, but it's even true at the individual level, right? There's some emergence and emanation creating the individual, but also creating the city, et cetera. Um, I think this is a good framing actually for, because the collective intelligence you're describing within a city, the Austrian economic literature is always describing this sort of nebulous term, the free market. But what it really means is just the collective intelligence of everyone that's trading and communicating. And today, you know, in the 2021, the market, let's say the liquidity of ideas is much higher than ever, right? Where ideas fly around the world very mm-hmm. fast now in the digital age. So, and in that model of the world, the emergence or the variation are entrepreneurs experimenting. And then the emanation is, are the wishes of customers, basically what do people demand? right? What problems do people want solved? That's kind of the principle that entrepreneurs are mapping their variation to. Um, But where I things get dicey is when you introduce coercion or theft or violence to that equation. And then it's no longer about what do the customers want? It's what are we being told to do? And so, and this is what what a lot of the show tries to explore is that I, I think the corruption of money has a lot of second and third order consequences on our social institutions and such. So I'd love to hear a little bit what you think about that. I could maybe try to describe it um, in another way if that didn't land with you. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So um, in the Austrian literature, again, they describe that each human has an internalized rank ordered list of values. And that essentially whatever you're doing in any moment, whatever action you're taking is an expression of your highest value, right? And so the, the point there is that action is the only way we express value. We're, we're uh, communicating to the world what our highest, the pinnacle of our value system is by what we're doing in any given moment. And the market is that form of uninhibited exchange that sort of synthesizes all these internalized value hierarchies from each individual into one collective value hierarchy that we call civilization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's based on whatever principles we're collectively selecting for, I guess. Um, 
But when you insert something like a central bank into the equation, it's no longer the consumer wishes are no longer the the principle that's emanating, right? It's no longer about supply and demand as much as it's about uh, coercion. You know, people being told what to do or being uh, forced to do something under the threat of violence or legal compulsion of some kind. Mm-hmm. So. I have a great question at the end of that. I'm just trying to like think out loud how to bridge these worlds. Yeah. There's a corruption of value hierarchies occurring based on the technical implementation of our market system. So I think, okay, so so maybe I think I see there's two things going on in what you're saying. And so I would say this, I would say that, so in a, okay, the difficulty with the free market and the difficulty with the idea of the customers or the desires of the customer um, deciding what is being made, let's say, is that there are some of our desires which are um, not for our own good. And we all know that, but not everybody is able to necessarily embody it. So it's like, let's say you have a 12-year-old boy. And then you, you, this, this 12 year old boy just, just uh, hits puberty and you say, all right, so now you can go online and just find the thing that, you know, like drives you, like find the thing that drives you. Well, that 12 year old boy is probably going to end up on a porn site really fast. And then it's like, that's not necessarily the best thing for his attention at, a, at when he's 12 years old, he might want to study math. But it's a lot easier and it's a lot more fulfilling at, in the moment to, to go on a porn site than to study math. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the difficulties of the free market is that what it's, what it's doing is that it's it, – and there's an, also another problem, which is that our desires and our, our desires are, are without – are unlimited because mm-hmm. like, they also – they fracture into smaller desires. And so – that creates, it's good for the market in the sense that it creates the, you could just create constant different products and you are constantly changing. But in terms of our psyche, it's not necessarily the greatest. And so in, so I would say that, of course, the idea that a central bank would be the one telling you what to buy or what not to buy, I, I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the reasons why in theory, now this is in theory, it doesn't always play out that way. But in theory, the idea of like the church, for example, is that in theory, you have someone who's not supposed to have a stake in the economic situation, mm-hmm. right? So you have a priest, you have monks who actually don't own anything. And then those are the ones telling you what's important. And so they have no economic, uh, they have no economic, and they also in theory don't have any capacity to 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 be violent let's say mm-hmm. right and and even in a traditional society the, the the church is never allowed to to do that like we have this idea that the church burned people and all this but the church never did that it was always the civil authorities the civil authorities acted but the church just said what was good and what was bad mm-hmm. um so i think that say it brings it back to the problem of where value what value is and where it comes from uh, and so i i do like in terms of the problem of money, let's say, and the problem of the way in which things are happening now, I do agree that there's, there, I mean, there's obviously corruption. I think it's becoming more and more evident and clear and clear. But to be honest, that corruption 
is led by the is led by the same type of desires that are feeding the free market. It is that corruption is led by the idea that the ultimate value is to be the richest and the most powerful and to have the most stuff. It's just that there are some people that are able to do that at the expense of others, and they're the ones who end up corrupting the system. So at the top of the hierarchy, there isn't someone who, in theory, is praying in a cave somewhere, you know, and eats two pieces of bread a day. And at the top of the hierarchy is some guy we don't know about, but who owns several islands somewhere and is like the richest man without us even knowing who he is and the most powerful. So, and so, so they want to control it, but it's the, 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 the desire, the desire that animates that person, right. Is the same person that, that goes on black Friday to Walmart and fights for a TV. Mm-hmm. It's just that one is able to do it. And the other person is struggling to do it. Okay. <clears throat> um, so a couple <laughs> sorry of, if I brought you somewhere you weren't expect you weren't no, 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 expecting no, no. or didn't it's, think it's, we'd go. It's a good back and forth, but I want to make a couple yeah. of points here. So one, the term free market, it, it's one of those terms I think that's been sufficiently bastardized or overused again, where we think we've seen the free market. We've never seen a free market in the world at all because mm. government government is not a free market phenomenon. If there's coercion, compulsion, or violence in play, that's that's the opposite of the free market. So we've always had that. We've always had the state, and we've always pretty much had monopolized money as well, which is not a free market phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So in this kind of so it makes it an abstract sort of ideal state we've never seen. But in that idealized state, if say person and property cannot be violated then that guy you're describing that owns a bunch of islands, he could have only gotten to that position by satisfying the wishes of others. And now I hear you that maybe that's not okay with the 13 year old kid, right? That's looking for porn online. So that would be, there's an interesting argument there because it's like, okay, where is coercion and compulsion justified? Because we we would justify it theoretically in the parent over the child, like, you can't go online yeah. to look at porn or whatever else, whatever rules. Yeah, whatever else, like anything, all the things that we tell our kids not to do, like right. we're obviously exercising compulsion. But at some point we draw a line and say, this kid is now an adult, which is a very blurry line and a whole can of worms in and of itself. But um, <laughs> do you think there is a case where compulsion or coercion is justifiable over adults? And, and the one Clearly, it's justifiable if someone goes out and kills someone that they should be compulsed or coerced into prison or, you know, death of some kind. But I'm saying if they absent that, they did not engage in coercion or compulsion originally. Do you think it's ever justified over the individual? Um, I mean, I think it's inevitable. Like, I don't really see a way way out of it because the, the difficulty... How can I say this? It's like, I've, like, I've lived, especially now, like, especially the way things are today. It's like, I've lived in places where the state is barely, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And what you get is not, it's not a bunch of people who own things and, and uh, respect each other. What you get are tyrants. Like you get little warlords, you get little mm-hmm. tyrants that, so, so I think that. Which is there's the state, a, there's, basically. They're trying to right, be a but I mean. State. How do you avoid it? 
Like, how do you avoid that? So, because, I mean, I think that to me, it's just that I don't, I don't see how there's, there kind of has to be uh, a system that is able to judge between people, even though that system will always go off key and will always be, will always be a problem, will always tend towards corruption. But in a certain manner, you, you can't, you don't have a choice because if you have conflicts and you have, um, you have two people that think that they own this piece of land and they're going to fight over it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it just be between two people. And so you can, and then if, if a group of people think they own a piece of something and the others think they're wrong, then they're going to fight over it as well. And so it's going to end up, and whoever wins is going to have to tyrannize the other group because, or else they're going to come and get them back. It's like, it's, there's just this inevitable thing. So I don't, I don't, I don't see, it's like this, the kind of libertarian dreamland. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in it. Like, I don't think it's possible because I, I think human nature just won't allow it. So let, let, let me give an example. Like, let's say a monastery. So for example, a lot of people, a monastery is like a little tyranny, mm-hmm. but it's a voluntary tyranny, mm-hmm. right? So you're in a monastery and you obey the abbot. And the abbot is there. The abbot decides what you get. He decides everything. Like you, you. He decides how much you eat. He decides what you wear. Decides everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do it voluntarily, and then it ends up being, you know, it it ends up being to your spiritual good. Not mm-hmm. like, so it just becomes inevitable. Like, and then and then people are equal. Everybody's kind of has a certain has a kind of weird freedom within that system. Um, but it's like, so I think to me, it's always a, a question of balance. And the problem we have is that balance, there's a real, like, if you think of a, of a medieval world, for example, I mean, I can all know how we can find that balance because in a medieval world, you would have someone like a king that has absolute power mm-hmm. and no reach. So the king could, the king can decide pretty much what he wants, but he, he doesn't have the capacity to. So there's a normal organic reality, which is that, okay, the king says that, but I mean, what is he going to do? Mm-hmm. Like it's the, the, the reality of the stormtrooper is a modern reality that it doesn't exist in any normal world where they just have, you could just send troops to, to. So in our world, it's more difficult because we do have this problem of technology, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know. I'm not saying I have a solution, but I don't think that the libertarian ideal is possible. Like I just don't. Mm. And I mean, so, have you ever lived in a in a community that is like that? Like, have you ever encountered that? No, I don't think it was ever possible, actually, prior to Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin is such an exciting phenomenon. It's the first layer to a civilization that makes leaderless civilization possible. Um, it's not to say we just absolutely won't have any leaders at all, but it will be so decentralized um that's let me start here you pose this question how do we avoid it right how do we avoid moving into statism let's say whether you're in a place with no state and you have these little micro tyrants trying to compete um and i think the the big argument here it's not so much that government needs to go to zero and completely go away which may be Maybe that is the libertarian dream you're saying you don't see as possible, but I think what it is about is making coercion and compulsion less profitable ultimately. So these little mm-hmm. micro tyrants you describe, if they can't turn that 
force they are projecting into tax revenue or they can't confiscate money or property, then again, we've changed the incentive structure they're operating within. So they're less likely to be forceful or tyrannical if it doesn't pay, right? That's kind of the big, mm. the big idea here. And I think what we would end up with is much more like the monastery you're describing, actually. You'd have someone had locally secured a, ter- a terrain or a territory, and then maybe citizens would come and pay them for protection, right? To live within the walls of this monastery or citadel, whatever we want to call it. But there'd be voluntary payments, right? You, you would have negotiated your contract with this protection providing whatever we want to call him, a monarch, I guess. Um, and so that's the big theory is that we'll go away from the large central nation state. There is no negotiating with the U.S., right? You don't negotiate your tax bill. You don't decide how much money is going to be printed. They're just stealing from people rampantly and in broad daylight. So the big idea with Bitcoin is that you have money that can't be inflated, can't easily be taxed. So it gives a lot of negotiating leverage back to the individual, which would see government in theory go back to its roots, which government started as a local protection producing enterprise. It was only through fiat currency that it scaled into what it is today. Mm, That makes sense. The difficulty again is that is, is is I bring it back to the to the main point from the beginning, which is what is a true value hierarchy? Because in the system you're describing, what you would end up having is people who are completely outside of the system. Like you'd have people who starve because the value is money. The value is Bitcoin. It's not love of your neighbor. It's not the idea that the rich, like for example, in 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 a Christian value system. Although it doesn't happen exactly, but the idea is that if you have money, you are responsible for the poor. Mm-hmm. It's actually your moral responsibility, and you're the only virtue you can get is by helping the poor. Um, and that is a there's a remainder of that in our society. Like there's a it's not it's not great, and it's all crooked. But there's a little remainder of that. But in this this system you're describing, if you don't have the means to negotiate protection inside the city then that's it for you, dude. You've got nothing. Well, you have your labor. You can always render services for money. There's no, really? Like, that's almost finished, don't you think? What do you mean? Like, how much labor can someone, like, uh, like, you know, we're looking at the the end of truck drivers. Right. Like, in the world where you don't need truck drivers and you don't need people to dig holes and you don't need people to... To do to 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 let you know to to hit the ground you know a million times to put seeds in and do to do all that stuff, then at some point the yeah the need to have a value hierarchy which is based on on uh, caring for the poor becomes even more and more urgent because the you're 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 moving towards a weird dystopia where you have gated communities of of super rich and then. And then you have people that are just on the outside of that. Well, one thing I would add here is that we very rarely look at the flip side of that. And so trucker automation, for instance, the, we always think of the first order consequence like, oh, well, all the truckers are going to lose their job and they're going to starve. But what we're not seeing is that that would only work if it delivered sufficient cost of living adjustments downward to people. If it created enough value for enough people, would that be successful in the marketplace? 
Now, again, I have to reemphasize what we see in the world today is not natural. It's not a free market. Unemployment's created by central banking, right? The fact when you create, and this is economics 101, when you create a minimum wage, you create institutional unemployment. If you look at, and when you print money, you're exacerbating wealth disparity as well. So if you look at this chart of money supply and homelessness, they track very nicely because what you're essentially doing is confiscating wealth from those that depend on the dollar to hold its value, right? People living paycheck to paycheck, the poor, people living on fixed income, and you're allocating that stolen wealth to owners of assets, which are largely the rich. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if our value system should be to be virtuous, to take care of the poor, the U.S. dollar and fiat currency more generally is the precise opposite. Yeah. It's robbing the poor to enrich the already rich. Yeah. No, for sure. The system is is definitely broken. I think I think most people see that and realize that. Um, but I'm not like I don't necessarily I think I, I can agree with this, the problem, but I'm not sure about the, the solution. Like, I'm not sure that 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 something like Bitcoin offers a solution to that problem because it brings about these other problems. Um, and it brings about also, um, it, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, which is, I, I mentioned this in our first conversation, which is the problem of the difference between someone who builds something and makes a lot of money and someone who trades online. And, and even the guy, like, let's say the guy who was lucky and bought a huge amount of Bitcoin when it was 50 cents or whatever, like that guy is obviously suddenly going to become the most powerful person in the world. And then, but then why? Like maybe that guy spends all this time. What does he spend his time doing? Who knows? Like it doesn't, there's no, there's no correlation between their value, like their virtue, let's say. Mm -hmm. So think about it this way. Like in, in the, in the middle, in the middle ages, for example, an aristocrat was not allowed to, to trade. So the kings and the, the the aristocrats were not allowed to have businesses. It was seen as a horrible thing to do, mm-hmm. right? Because because they weren't they weren't they were supposed to make money in their in their feudal relationship, which would guarantee their their care for their 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 feudal servants, like because that's how they were making their money. But when you when you have this, like, so I mean, business is not it's not that bad. But it's like take that into something like crypto and Bitcoin. Then all of a sudden, you just have people sitting in front of a screen, you know, clicking buttons and 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 you know and kind of being able to perceive the pattern of crypto, and then they become the most powerful people in the world. But those people are not like, I don't want those people as rulers. Not that I want the ones that are there now. Like I don't, yeah. I'm not saying the ones that are there now are that good, but I don't think trading them for one for the other is going to be any better. <laughs> uh, a couple of clarifications here. So I don't advocate for crypto at all. Right. And I'm not. Yeah. Or Bitcoin. About, I mean, and I'm talking about, and you could pull Bitcoin out of the equation. You just say a, a yeah. hard money society, a society that, we let the market figure out which money works best versus putting a gun to people's head and saying, you will use the dollar or yeah. go to jail. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And to the point of getting lucky, like an individual could have bought Bitcoin at 50 cents, become lucky. But in that free market world, if they, and maybe they live a full rich life, maybe their kids do, maybe their grandkids do. But at some point down the line, if they're just, if they're not adding value to society, then they have no income, basically. Yeah, they're going to lose it. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah. It would draw go back down over time. Whereas in a fiat world, you can literally render no value. To, you can destroy value. That's what we have today is we have, we're, the world is governed by war mongerers because war mongering is profitable and they can fund it through the printing of money. They don't, there's no accountability to the preferences of consumers as we're describing would be the case in the free market. So um, it seems like it's at least a step in the right direction. If nothing else, it eliminates the inflation, right? If we could, we could get into the weeds about what else Bitcoin does or does not fix, but it's pretty clear that on a Bitcoin world, no one could increase the money supply arbitrarily. And that's what was used to fund World War I, World War II, every internment camp, every dictator, they've all bastardized the money to enrich themselves. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin at least fixes that. Mm -hmm. But you don't think that you could, you, with something like Bitcoin, you don't think you could fund World War I or World War II? Um, I don't think so. I think the, the duration and scope of warfare shrinks dramatically when you don't have fiat currency in the equation. Because what fiat currency gives you the ability to do Instead of waging war from just your own war chest, your own balance sheet as a government, you now have access to the savings of your entire productive population, right? You can just print money and externalize all the costs onto them. You can make them suffer the hyperinflation that you use to go to war with. Yeah. So it turns your war, it, it 100X is your war chest, roughly. Mm. Yeah, makes sense what you're saying. So... Yeah, I think it's just interesting ideas. Let's shift gears to another lightweight question. <laughs> How do you define God? Well, well yeah, well, there you and go. I, and I, and I'll, I'll say it with a caveat. I know there's no definition. I know it can't be yeah. put into words, but let's try anyways. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that at least especially for people that are watching like people that are that are religious already they they let, let me not go in that direction just because they're not the ones i have to convince i guess hmm. you know and so the idea would be that that you could you could say something like the 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 place where intelligence move to, moves towards right intelligence stacks so it stacks towards a infinite intelligence. So it's it's like infinite intelligence, right? The source of intelligence. Um, and then it's also the pattern of the patterning of reality itself. And so let's say in a Christian manner, we would say that God is love because we believe that love is the actual manner in which the world exists. And I've, I've described this a few times in my videos, you know, the balance between unity and multiplicity is something like love which is represented by the, the Trinity in Christian terms. Um, and so the divine loving source of all things 
is a good way to explain it. Now, when I say that, now it sounds sappy and people will think of a guy on the sky, but hopefully you've heard the first descriptions I, I this first description I gave, and you'll see how this is is actually kind of describing the origin of of the world in terms of what we talked about before, the, the way in which emergence and emanation come together to manifest phenomena ultimately stacks up towards, yeah, towards that. But God, but Christians, like let's say mystical Christians, especially don't believe God is a being. Mm -hmm. They believe that God is, is the source of being, that God is beyond being. So it's not a thing. Like you said, you can't, you ultimately can't describe God. You're always circling around. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Um, I was struck by this, this etymology on the word God, actually, I don't know if you've heard of the Sanskrit term boot G H U T. Um, and it's one of the words that I guess precedes the word God and it has couple of meanings two of which are to come back and return and the second one is to barter or exchange so i wonder if you had ever heard that that etymology before um and then i you know i've heard too what's that saying that the way of the Tao is reversal and so that's partly in this definition and then you know exchange is something that it seems to me to be like the most important universal phenomenon. Everything's constantly exchanging with everything else. We could almost say action and exchange are indistinguishable because all action is an exchange. Mm. Um, have you heard of that root for the word God? I never heard that before. Mm. Uh, I mean, of course the return makes sense, you know, in the idea that the, the, that the purpose of reality is to return to God you know, mm -hmm. is that the purpose of reality is to be to be united with its source, united with its origin, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's something you really do see in, in Orthodox uh, Christianity. In terms of exchange, I mean, I don't know. I've never heard that. But it's not mm -hmm. that it doesn't bother me that much if you understand it in terms of, uh, let's say, the reality of sacrifice, you know, how there's a manner in which the manner in which you have to trade off when you're balancing unity and multiplicity it ends up being a, a trade so you you know when you're many you have many things you have to you have to sacrifice and trade some aspects of them in order to reach a purpose or a goal or something right. higher so it costs something so it's an idea that if you if you're going to be even if you're going to be united with god it's going to cost you something mm -hmm. you're going to have to pay that you know not in the sense of the different ways to understand it but there's a manner in which uh let's say you want to exist in a basketball team and you have a bunch of players and those players it costs them something to be in that on that team mm -hmm. they have to they they have to trade so they have to sacrifice some aspects of themselves some idiosyncrasies right and so and they have to refocus their attention on the team on training on everything and that's a form of trade right you're giving mm -hmm. your attention to the team and the team is giving you back the 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 pleasure and the the, the prestige of winning mm -hmm. right and so that trade right that you give to the to the basketball team and you get back is a sacrifice it's a religious mm -hmm. sacrifice 
at a lower level, but religious sacrifices were of that nature. You give something up. Paying taxes is a religious sacrifice. Mm. It's very similar to tithing or to, mm. to even the animal sacrifices that were done. Um, and so I think that in that sense, there is that the idea that there's a relationship of trade. And people, I, I just hope people can hear me properly because I, I'm really trying to describe a pattern of reality and not some, not just like a weird ritual that people had to do, you know, in order to, in order to be in contact with their God. But like, you do that to be part of any family or any team, you always end up trading. Mm-hmm. But you trade something lower for something higher. It's not a, it's not so much a, a side side trade, right? It's not just, it's not just, it's not so much like trading a cow for two pigs. It's like you're 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 trading a cow for identity or for purpose or something higher. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so there's a conformity occurring, right? That you're sacrificing some aspects of yourself to embody aspects of the team or whatever the higher goal is. Um, I think there's a subtle difference though here between the basketball player or the, the person paying the tithing. Those are voluntary acts, right? The basketball player voluntarily joining the team. The person paying the tithing is presumably voluntary. Taxes are involuntary. You know, they're just imposed. It's at the tip of a gun. Um, and I, I, this is the kind of the crux of the, I guess you could say the libertarian argument is that there just shouldn't be any of that. Um, and to your point about choosing a course of action and the opportunity costs associated with that, that's pointing towards the problem with fiat currency, I think, is that a government doesn't incur opportunity costs. I mean, they still do in reality, but at least in the short run, they can make a decision that totally destroys value for a lot of people. And they can just steal from this group by printing money and keep doubling down on that decision, right? They don't ever, there's no accountability to, again, the emanation of customer wishes or individual wishes. So, and but I think that one of the, they're, why do you think there's no there's no consequence? Because let's say I think there's um, long-term consequence. Yeah, I, I think the civilization is it, maybe because there's eventually. so much stuff. Like technology has created so much stuff that we don't feel the pressure as fast. Because like in a, in a, let's say in a in a kingdom where the king would devalue the currency mm-hmm. and would mix the silver with some other metal, and then yeah. it's like it wouldn't take very long before there would be riots. No, you're because absolutely- all of a sudden. You're you couldn't buy stuff. Yeah. yeah. What your intuition is exactly correct, that we've generated so much economic abundance through global, globalization and the digital age, right? We've created so much more productivity that fiat currency issuers, they're basically just harvesting that productivity by creating new paper. So as long as they don't do it too quickly, people don't feel it too much. No one knows what's going on. The scheme continues. But yeah. As we've seen in the past 18 months, this thing has gone very parabolic. Prices are exploding. People are starting to, to feel it. And so, Mike, to try to take this to a deeper point, I'd like to know your thoughts on the role of sacrifice in creating reality <clears throat> and what happens when we anesthetize ourselves from sacrifice as governments are doing with fiat currency. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that what you're saying is, you're right, you're right that we're definitely heading towards some crisis. I mean, I don't know how it's going to manifest itself, but like you said, 
you know, the way in which even the the system, like the production system that we were engaged with in like the globalized um, supply chain, you know, and just-in-time delivery and all of this stuff. I mean, it was just so fragile. Like it was just mm-hmm. creating this world, which was so fragile. Um, and the, the money system is also part of that. It's like, it's kind of riding the edge, right? It's like something which is just barreling out of control, but it's just somewhat still staying on the road mm-hmm. for a long time. And, uh, and now with, with COVID, it seems like, to be honest, it seems like some people have decided to crash this thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure what the end goal is, like what is the end goal? But, you know, it seems like there are some very powerful people that have decided to, to, to crash this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're using a lot of, they're going to use a lot of environmental language to defend it, mm-hmm. you know. But it seems like it's happening. And it seems like, like you know, like the, the, the crash of 29, it's like, might happen before 29. But it, but it's, it's, so I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't see, like, to me, I just, like, how do you think Bitcoin could, could, could make be a solution to that? Like, I don't, re- I don't see it because the, the reality of the guns is like the reality of the, of the money is, is backed by weapons and by, it's, it's not just a question of, of fiat money. There's a whole military complex behind it, yep. which is making it real, you know, but Bitcoin doesn't have that, right? Bitcoin doesn't have an army. And so how does Bitcoin survive in a world that is heading towards a, a crash or heading towards some crisis that is being either manufactured or being, people are taking advantage of the situation to, to bring it about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and the first point I would introduce is that, you know, gold doesn't have an army either. Gold is free market selected money. How did it get there? It got there because actually to your point, right? Where you describe emergent properties coming from certain things like gold renders certain properties to human beings that we want from money, right? We want money to be divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce. So self-interest led us to money. Um, But force and monopolization got us from gold to fiat currency, basically. Mm -hmm. So the point of the crash of 29, which I agree with you, we're definitely headed towards a calamity. It's important to know that the 1929 collapse was a direct result of central bank implementation. We implemented the Fed in 1913. We expanded the money supply. Things got really hot into the roaring 20s. But it also, this debt-based money fragilizes economies because because when money is losing value over time, you're incentivized to take on more and more debt. Then when there's an economic shock, the shock is exacerbated, right? Everyone's operating on a very thin margin. No, there's no buffer of equity. So when there's a shock, it's it reverberates in a way that it wouldn't without all of the, the fragility from debt. Mm. So that's what the 1929 collapse was. And we're in way worse territory now. We have global debt to GDP, like 350% debt to GDP. It doesn't even make any sense, right? It's like, <laughs> None of it makes any sense. It's like having a job and you make a hundred thousand a year, but you've got 450,000 a year in debt, right? It just, it's unpayable. Um, 
And, you know, you've said this before too, like we're in Weimar Germany times 10. Yeah. And I don't know if you know the story of money in Weimar Germany, but it was totally made possible by debauching the currency. So yeah. I would say it, the current currency collapsed. Yeah. yeah. Your point is absolutely correct, but I'm just trying to, and I'm not saying it's solely the money. I'm never trying to make that claim. I know these things are multivariate and they're complicated, et cetera, but money is an indispensable part of the 1929 collapse of Weimar Germany and of yeah. the collapse we're going into. I agree. I think, I mean, it seems, it seems like that has become pretty obvious. And I mean, especially with the, 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 the 2020 insane drop of money, just like, just mm -hmm. so at the level that make so no sense. Like there's no, yeah. there's no accounting for how much money was put into the system in 2020. And so, you you think this can't there's no way this can't continue but i don't like i said i think that what i struggle with is because that money is backed by military power mm -hmm. i don't see how bitcoin can oh how bitcoin can give us a solution because when the guns when the gestapo is in the streets it doesn't matter how much bitcoin you're gonna have yeah right I, I don't see, or I mean, unless you, unless you like, unless like, I mean, you seem to be doing, and, and I've seen some people do that. Like if you have the capacity to really like just move out on a desert Island somewhere, you know, like move out outside of the spheres of influences of, of the major governments. Um, but that's obviously not a solution for everybody. That's sure. a solution for whoever is able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a delicate area, but my current view would be that every human organization is a business. This includes the state. The state's revenue model is taxation. Taxation can be your direct tax bill or it can be inflating the currency supply essentially. Right, yeah. So focusing just on inflation, the more central banks or nation states inflate their money supply, the more demand they're creating and for everyone for inflation resistant money, which is Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. there's one big driver of demand for Bitcoin. And then what happens is that as Bitcoin monetizes, that's half the revenue model for the US government. In 2020, we printed $4 trillion roughly, and we tax, we had direct tax revenue of $4 trillion. So Bitcoin, we know collapses half of the US revenue model, right? Inflation just goes away. So then what happens? Yeah. Governments have to tax you harder directly. So real estate taxes, this talk about un taxing unrealized gains, stuff gets, gets more and more exotic. It becomes much more uh, Gestapo, as you would say, from a tax policy standpoint. And then, um, you know, you've got them trying to enforce, it's, it's the parasite, really. The, the, you can think of the state as a parasite on the productive economy, but it's trying to consume too much energy from it to the point where it kills the host. And that's what hyperinflation has been historically. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the path that will follow is more inflation. Well, what do you think of the, what do you think of the digital currencies that they're being prepared? Like in terms of, because once that starts to happen too, it's going to create that's, other problems. That's their target end game. They want everyone on the central bank digital currency, which is just a, it's the same thing as a fiat currency, just with some added uh, surveillance tools effectively. Yeah. You see, it's worse because yeah. they're saying, like I was reading articles about programming 
the central bank, central yes. bank uh, currency and, you know, making, you could have it expire. You could have it. Yes. They can only buy certain things that you're not allowed to buy other things. I'm like, my goodness, this is, yes. we're heading towards absolute catastrophe. Yes. This is uh, the, the Chinese model, the social credit score model, where if they don't like what you're seeing about the state or you're buying the wrong things or seeing the wrong things, they turn off your money selectively. And it could be, you know, no traveling, no this, no that. Uh, they, they also, they do weird stuff. They publicly shame people on billboards or, yeah. they, or if you're an ideal citizen, they do the opposite and they, they sort of highlight you. <laughs> um, that's the, I mean, that's the war right there. It's like digital age has opened up all this possibility, but it could go either direction. We could go to this totally dystopian, centrally controlled panopticon yeah. Or we could move towards potentially this Bitcoin enabled libertarian world. Um, because one of the things that happens with the Bitcoin is that because I'm talking like I am like thinking really real hardcore things hitting the fan. Right. And so mm -hmm. if things hit the fan, one of the issues you're going to have is that you're physically far away from these other Bitcoin people. Right. When the police comes to your house, the Bitcoin people aren't going to help you. They're far away. Right. And so I don't know. I don't. That's why I don't see how Bitcoin can really help you unless you physically flee, unless you physically go live on a yacht with a bunch of Bitcoin millionaires and and like live, you know, live and live, live on the water somewhere and just, you know, go from island to island. Like I don't I struggle to find how it's going to. You know, when they, like, let's say you, so let's say, you, I don't, maybe you can give me a solution. Like say the Chinese, for example. So like, what about like, do the China, how do the Chinese make, use Bitcoin to their advantage right now? Can they? Uh, they the Chinese the CCP is accumulate, they own some Bitcoin. So, and that, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in that field, but they've yeah. outlawed it and unoutlawed it a dozen times over the <laughs> yeah, past five years. So it's just whatever, but they're holding Bitcoin. They hold some Bitcoin, you know, some yeah. Bitcoin that they've, I don't know, either confiscated from certain operations or whatever, but I guess the longer game, it's not like you're looking for individual Bitcoiners to come be your police force. It's just the fact that it gives you, you know, again, Weimar Germany is a great example. When people wanted to leave Germany, <laughs> You know, the tax rate, the initially the exit tax was 50%, then it was 60%, then it was 70%, then it was 80%, then it was 90%, then it was all of it, then it was all of it, and we're going to kill you. Like, they, you <laughs> yeah. can't move your capital out of the country. But yeah. Bitcoin, it gives so much power to the individual. It's like you just put your key in your brain and you're good. Or you, yeah. you know, there's a million possible ways to do it. Yeah. Um, so in the event that there is, a more oppressive regime, the individual has more options to flee and they can flee yeah. with all of their capital, mm. presumably. So the longer thesis is that as capital and individuals are more mobile, they're going to go to the jurisdictions where they are treated best. So it's in a way, Bitcoin is forcing governments to start competing with one another, like we have competition in every other industry. So they actually start to be accountable to the preferences of customers and trying to render satisfaction in some form. Yeah. So you would have Bitcoiners moving toward to states that are 
that 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 accept or that don't outlaw it or that don't yeah. you know do or, whatever they they're going to do yeah. or lobbying to establish their own states or change the rules well, we're seeing this in el salvador today um you know because you have to keep in mind as as this transition's happening people holding bitcoin are just going to have more and more wealth and wealth enables you to rewrite the rules in new places so um the big trajectory is a disincentivization disincentivizing violence and coercion because it's really hard to steal the money if it's custodied properly and then the mobility of capital and people sort of coalescing into jurisdictions where they're treated best yeah but it's interesting because the way that it's presented in like the mainstream narrative is that bitcoin is is dangerous because it's so easy to steal and that you know it's like i had i had my my i had my uh crypto on quadringa yeah and whatever i yeah. yeah but i don't it's like you're right i didn't have it on a wallet so it's like so i'm i'm to blame for that um but you know it's still like i've never there's the only time that i've had oh, i've had money stolen before but like let's say that much that mm -hmm. was kind of stolen from me or just vanished you know yeah so kind of gave me a ooh, all right we gotta yeah. think about this you know? <laughs> it's a a little bit great power comes great responsibility thing you know if you lose yeah. your keys like if you leave it on an exchange and it disappears it's gone there's yeah it's gone um but that's that same dynamic is what gives you the power to leave the country right mm. so no i mean i i i've also like i think i moved a little bit in terms of the crypto uh thinking like in terms of bitcoin in terms of understanding also because I ended up did ended up speaking to Vin to Vin Armani. I haven't put it out yet on my channel, but mm -hmm. he he talked about proof of work, which I never thought about. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that he did convince me to a certain extent with his proof of work argument that that there is a certain value which is there, which you can't ignore. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like the gold, like you said, like what the one of the values of gold is the value is the cost that it takes to get the gold. That's and right. so everybody in the system has a stake to make sure that gold is worth more than what it costs at least at least more than what it costs to get out of the ground and sure. so there's a manner in which i could see that it was related that it isn't just it isn't actually like fiat because fiat is just that it's just like here's money and it, they just so. put it out of yeah. the, in the system whereas this it's and it's funny because it, the system it's the exact same reason that the system is telling us bitcoin is bad is because it it requires work yeah. So because it requires work it's bad because it's bad for the environment and all this kind yeah. of stuff uh but then they just they just pump out like fiat money and it's bad in another way it's 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 bad in the sense that it's basically corrosive to it's corrosive to existence ultimately yes. like we're heading towards massive uh massive inflation and massive uh crashes so yeah so i, I i've been thinking about it differently so i do i do i did with my son start uh, a, a crypto wallet. So now I do have some Bitcoin, which I didn't have last time I talked to you. Yeah, so I we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, it's good you're holding it because yeah, you've got to hold your own keys. Otherwise you don't have it basically as you've learned. Um, well, so I don't know, I'll try to use some, I, this is some language I got from my conversation with Verveki, but he talks a lot about the agent and arena relationship. Uh, is that explored in symbolic thinking very much? Because I think that is really what we're destroying here. When you said it's corrosive to everything, it's like we're corroding 
agent and arena relationships by violating property rights ultimately, right? So people can't store the fruits of their own labor. You don't know how much you're going to be stolen from at any given point, you know, through inflation or taxation. So it's driving people mad. I think you're right. No, I think you're right. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a general, it's not just the money. It's the world in which we live, which is so volatile, which is changing so fast. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the, the money and the inflation and also the arbitrariness of it is, is obviously something which is dry, I think is driving people crazy. Uh, but it's not just that it's, it's, it's everything else, which is constantly changing around us. It's, you know, it's this, this thing is driving you crazy too. This, you, you spend your time, you know, and you move from app to app, you're going from messages to this, to that. And so mm-hmm. we're constantly like in this frenetic energy, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we live in these different weird spaces, right? We, we live, we exist in these online communities and in these online spaces, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we kind of come back into our families and into our, our immediate surroundings. All of this is definitely destructive. But I think you're right that, you know, uh, the, the, the idea that the state, one of the problems of the modern state has been that it's like because of its arbitrariness and its arbitrary mm-hmm. power, its capacity to expropriate you, its capacity to, you know, the, the capacity that it's developed to arbitrarily just come and take people away, you know, with mm. you know, authoritarian systems. But that, in our case, is what you're saying. It's like, you have no idea. Like, you don't know what the, so you borrow from the, you know, you, the, the interest rate. Like, it's like, it's just set by, it's just set and then it moves and whatever. You have no idea. Like, you, you don't, under, things can change at any time. And like you said, all of a sudden the inflation, you go to the store and then food is, has it's still there and it's all there it's not like there's less food but it's like why why is it more expensive all of a sudden you know but there is eventually yeah. less food yeah there right? is now well sure. again, if, you, if you just go to the ultimate extreme of hyperinflation you know that there's nothing you've seen those pictures you know stores yeah. are cleaned out supply yep. chains don't work because the meaning making of the money is broken at that point so as we move further along that spectrum, we expect to see more and more shortages. You know, it creates real scarcity, I guess, is the point. Yeah. Which is a bit of a counterintuitive thing. Because, like, if you want economic abundance, you need scarce money. Mm-hmm. If you have abundant money, you end up with uh, scarce economic resources. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's to be honest, like, we also, we've had like we have less scarcity than anybody has ever had in the history of the human mm-hmm. race. And so yep. that's definitely something that is something somewhat out of control. It's like, look, I'm happy, right. I'm happy to eat uh passion fruit in Quebec in like January. I mean, that's fine, but there's something about that, which I can completely understand is can't last forever. Like mm-hmm. I can't see that lasting forever. Um, but I don't know if that has that has to do with the money. Uh, it has more mostly to do with this problem of the market that I that I talked about at the outset, which is the the idea of, pro- of providing all these 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 like more and more exotic needs for people and having a whole row full of coffee, like of just you know like thirty companies of coffee that all have yeah. thirty different types of coffee. Like there's something about that which is also driving us mad. Like that's driving us insane. Like having to choose your toothpaste in front of like 20 types of toothpaste is part of the madness of our world too. And I don't, I don't particularly like the communist, you know, answer to that, which is like 
take this and this is what you get and that's it. Like, I don't like that, but I don't necessarily see this kind of, this excess that we're in as something which is good for us. Yeah, I don't know where you would draw the line because competition is what's creating low prices and innovation, you know? So I don't have a great answer to that other than the alternative you just provided is nightmarish, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I totally agree. I don't yeah. want the other yeah. side either. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not one of those people that is, I'm on the one hand, I see the, the madness of the, of our, of what, what, what's accessible to us. But on the other hand, you know, my wife comes from a communist country, you know, her, her parents uh, fled uh, Slovakia mm. and it's like, I wouldn't want to, I would rather live here than lived in Slovakia, you know, in the mm. 1960s and 70s. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So you've said, and always correct me wherever I'm wrong here, uh, religious patterns are mechanisms of perception, the way we perceive value in things. So an idea I've been toying with lately, well, toying with, but just it's occurred to me that really all of our social institutions appear to be religions or religious in nature to some extent. And I think this is another area where a lot of materialists <laughs> uh, throw a fit and they're like, oh no, you know, it's not a religion. Um, but if they, if they're patterns for, for meaning making or for perception, then that I mean, it means it's everywhere, right? We're, we are religious animals and yeah. all of these groupings we create are religious. Um, so, and you know, money then too would be religious. Like how, how do you, is that, am I describing your, your perspective there correctly? And maybe you could just add a little color. Um, well, you could understand it as different levels of the same pattern. So the idea would be that let's say for, um, for a, a state or for a family to exist together, there's a certain uh, perception that we have about the manner in which those beings coexist together. There's a manner in which we understand the, the nature of that unity, the responsibilities of each, you know, all of that. And then also the rituals, which will embody our existence as a family. Like you actually absolutely need rituals. There's no way around it. If you don't have rituals that, manifest your unity then it's not going to happen you know mm -hmm. so you you'd say as a family you have to 
clean on Saturday mornings and you have to eat together, you know, every dinner. And then you also have to, there are certain things you have to not let your socks, you know, around the house or whatever it is, rituals that you have, mm-hmm. you know, there are lower levels. Rich, rich, so national rituals also have that nature, right? There are certain things you have to do. You have to pay your taxes. You have to follow the rules. You have to cross mm-hmm. at the red light and the green light. These are all ritualistic behaviors. We don't tend to think of them as ritualistic mm-hmm. behavior, but they're of a similar nature as uh, other rituals that we embody in terms of religious patterns. And then religious patterns are, of course, the highest forms of those types of rituals because they they tend to embody the highest virtues. And so let's say if you go to church, right, you're singing about God who loves you and your love for each other. You know, you, you, you recognize that you have to care for each other, care for the poor, you know, and that, and so you celebrate these things. And so all things that we recognize as having uh, being will Mm -hmm. also involve, will involve that, at lower levels, right? So you all, everything you engage with has to be patterned. So mm-hmm. you could see those as, if you don't like the word ritual, just say that it has to be patterned, that's fine. But that if you do that, then don't exclude the religious rituals then. Because the religious rituals are also patterns of unity that, that, you know, that we engage in to, mm. to recognize that we're together in something. Hmm. Yeah. The original, right? The original collective patterns of behavior are religious so they they're are more archetypal or more i guess dealing with archetypes perhaps they're more compressed yeah, they're more compressed they're dealing with with higher realities you could say mm. or higher patterns okay so you're and i think you and i share this perspective deeply that i have long been fascinated with fractals ever since i discovered the work of mandelbrot years ago just this intrinsic geometry of nature Hmm. Um, but then you it gets really interesting when you start to see it not only is like the pebble looking like the stone looking like the mountain but you start to see uh you know the golden ratio in the arc of a galactic arm and then the arc of the dna coil like it's at just multiple scales reality is has a self-similarity are you then would, would we say that and a social institution is sort of a fractal macrocosm of ritual. Then we have these small rituals that crystallize up into these larger institutions. I think that's the way to understand it. And so you have to understand unities as containing smaller unities yeah. and all those unities have their own reality and they have their own multiplicity. It's always like all the way down. Yeah. So, so all the way down, you basically have embedded hierarchies uh, and then that, ways of being right mm-hmm. so if you don't like the word ritual again like ways of being that make it make those things exist together and as you scale up then at some point you come to things that we see as meaningful which are you know like shaking hands and so they're variable they don't have they're not there's not just one way of doing it mm-hmm. but let's say there's a ritual for greeting someone and even though that ritual will be variable it'll be variable only to a certain extent like you can't have the greeting, the, the ritual for greeting each other be throwing rocks at each other. Like that's right. not going to work, right? There, 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 there has to be something like showing your hands, you know, touching the other person in a way, hugging, all these yeah. things that will show that you're, that, you're, that you're coming into communion with them. And so that, like you said, so that scales up, you know, up all the way, also all the way up, let's say. 
yeah. into the infinite. And so the defining feature of these rituals or institutions is the coming together for a common purpose. Is that right? We, we sort of, or again, I guess it's emanating down, right? We, we select the yeah. purpose and that emanates into our ritual structure. Yeah, so we co we cohere around a purpose, and then that purpose comes down and shapes us in the image of that purpose. The mm. team is a team, like a sports team, is a really great way to see it, right? Mm. Which is that we cohere together as a team in order to play together in, in towards something. But then the fact that we do that creates now a top-down relationship in which now the purpose of the team is telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. And now we take roles in relationship to that and we start to train in relationship to that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, you have these two sides kind of uh, interacting with each other. That's, yeah, that's very useful. Um, I think here, you know, the, what comes to mind again is a, if we change, changing the profitability of certain activities changes the way civilization would manifest so you, you mm -hmm. it would almost change the purpose which again the state You're talking about like now like a bottom-up change of profitability of what of what makes things something profitable well i'm talking about right now with statism coercion and compulsion is very profitable right because the the money is monopolized but if the money is not monopolized it's not as profitable to coerce someone so in general you would expect the canopies to adopt a different purpose based on those incentives. Does that make sense? I mean, or, or they'll crash your system. Yeah. Right. Or, or they'll feel so threatened by what you're saying that like, if I kill you, I don't care. Your key's gone. If I well, kill enough, if I kill enough people, then they don't, then that, then that system is going to go away. Like I hate to be, to be, to, to go all the way there, but, <laughs> Not like it hasn't if, happened before. If you kill me, my key's not gone though. It goes into a succession protocol and goes to my heirs. Right, but I'll kill your heirs too, right? The, well, the communists would kill you, and then they would they would take you, put you in the gulag, and then they would basically slowly move out in your social sphere to take your wife, your kids, your uncle, your brother. They would just start gathering them, and even if they were innocent, they would still send them to the gulag. Yeah. Like those things exist, man. They're, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a reality. There's a reality of political power, which I feel like a lot of these arguments are missing, which is that political power is is brute force, right? It's actual guns and actual physical capacity to to yeah. hurt you, yes. and that that doesn't that you can't you can't remove that with something like bitcoin i don't think so because that those guns exist and and the the people willing to use them exist you know yeah well it defunds a lot of that activity over time but so i guess maybe a useful question would be what stopped the spread of tyranny and authoritarianism in the 20th century like what what was the force that it ran into that stopped it I think it's a, I think it's it's PTSD is what I think it is. I mean, I think that World War II shocked the world, scared it into pulling back for mm -hmm. one generation, one and a half generations. That's it. It's almost over already. Mm -hmm. But I mean, watching those bombs go off in Japan, 
you know, and then the count, you know, of the dead, you know, and realizing, I think that that's what happened. I think that that's what, what set the world on a, on a loop and prevented, you know, prevented uh, more of the, of the madness. But I think that we were already forgetting that. I w- I've been saying since I was 20 that when all the people that were alive during World War II are dead, it's going to happen again because mm. we haven't dealt with anything. Like any of the issues that, that came up and brought about World War II, I don't think any of them have been dealt with. And so it's just going to come back stronger. I don't, I'm not saying it's going to, what it's going to mean uh, like a war again. But it, it could mean a more worldwide authoritarianism. Like, mm-hmm. no. Well, it's interesting because I guess the the root issue here is that we corrupt our meaning-making structures, right? The, somehow an institution that once served a purpose of uniting people under a common purpose or helping people make meaning loses relevance at some point based on technological realities changing based on it has to do with it has to do with purpose and aim uh, ultimately so yeah. so let me a good way to understand that like this is this, a way that you might help you understand what it is that i'm ultimately driving to mm-hmm. which is that so in let's say in india there's a caste system all right so mm-hmm. i don't want to talk about the the economic reality of the caste system, like I'm not, I don't, that's not what I want to, to point to, but there's a, there are main castes, right? There's a priestly caste, there's a warrior caste, there's a business type caste, and then there's workers. Okay, so you have four main castes. And the idea is that things are supposed to be oriented in a certain way, which is that the, the priestly caste is the highest caste, but they're poor ultimate they're supposed to be poor it was like that in the middle ages too in the middle ages we had three we had those that pray those that fight those that work mm-hmm. right those that pray are the highest but they don't they they're poor mm-hmm. and they they give the purpose to the warrior class mm-hmm. and the people the the mass the workers all these people they they trust more the higher the, the church, people don't mm-hmm. think that, but that's how it was. Yeah. They trust the church more and they accept the authority of the of those that fight because they're submitted to God, submitted mm-hmm. to higher a higher reality. Now, there comes a point where those that are have the political power get mighty annoyed that they had to submit to all these nice rules, right? right? That, that, that they're saying, oh, you can't fight on Sunday. And you can't ravage through villages. You can't burn down things. You can't pillage villages. Like what yeah. the hell is that? Right. They get tired of that and they decide to try to take that for themselves. And so they, they, they devolve the power and then the state takes all the power for itself. And then, but then when that happens, it's legitimacy is gone. The only legitimacy it has is brute strength. Right. There's nothing, nothing, nothing justifies its authority. And so then what happens is that the, 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 the business cast, they say, what's the legitimacy of these guys? Like, they don't have any legitimacy. They, they just want to impose their thing on, on us. And like, we just want to get rid of them. And so we get rid of them. And then the same thing happens. 
So it's basically what Marx described, but like upside down. Like Marx saw that as good. Marx thought that it was great that ultimately there would be a devolving of power and it would end up in the tyranny of the proletariat. Um, but that's insane. Like that actually doesn't work. The system has to be oriented towards God or towards ultimate value or else it devolves. And so the problem we have is exactly that. In the, at the end of the Middle Ages, you know, the, the, the princes tried to take power from the church and they tried to create state churches. And there was all this whole thing that went on. And then before they knew it, they were in trouble as well. And then people started wanting to take that from them. And then revolution is inevitable. And then there's a fight between the state and the business people. And then that fight is still there now. Like, it's like you're part of it. Like there's this fight between those that say it's all about free market and trade and everything. Yeah. And then those that are saying, no, we need to have order and unity and we need yeah. some kind of state, state power. But I think both of them are going to, are going to, I think both of them, if they're not anchored in a higher value, then they're both not going to sustain the society. Right. So that's, that's, if, that's a good way to understand basically what I'm saying, like in terms of a pattern yeah. of, of how, reality, how reality holds together. So if you want to understand what happened in, in like World War I and World War II, it was exactly a conflict there. It was a conflict between the money, the bankers, and the, the states. Mm. Like it was like, it was a, a tug. All right, this is helpful. I'm sort of visualizing. Again, I keep looking at this through that hierarchical lens, and it's almost like if the canopy is organized under a common, submitting to a common purpose, right? The individuals are submitting to some higher purpose, and that's how they're coordinating their action within this hierarchy. Um, but there comes maybe a point. And this is natural, right? This is the predilection towards freedom that maybe the the political class or the warrior caste, whatever the the force, the group of people that wield political power, let's say, they want to yeah. throw off this the discipline of this purpose at some point because they have power, right? I mean, it's it's power. I guess that's right. It's them. it's pretty simple. Like it's not complicated, right? It's, yeah. it's, you can see how it happens, you know. Right. And this makes sense. There's an economic story to be told here too, because historically gold was that disciplinary principle for the nation state, right? Now, and maybe not completely, like maybe at the time of the founding fathers, God really was part of the country too. And we had principled leaders, but over the longest span of time, nation states have really been fighting over gold and to accumulate more gold. I mean, it, you could, you can follow the flows of gold too, and see why the U.S. won World War II, for instance. Like a lot mm -hmm. of gold flowed into North America to be a geographic safe haven from Nazi plundering. Then the U.S. steps in and wins World War II. We rewrite the banking rules in Bretton Woods because we have the most gold, right? We're the most dominant state gang in the world because we hold all the money, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and this explains, too, why central banking and we, we moved away, moved off the gold standard because they're throwing off this disciplinary yeah. force because historically if you were misbehaving as a government gold would leave your country but if you can detach yourself from that discipline then all of a sudden you get 
uh, you know, more limitless political power, let's say. So I guess the one thing I want to insert here, maybe this will land a bit. The value proposition of Bitcoin is that it's increasing the cost to benefit ratio of political power. Mm-hmm. So political to exert political power, power is just not as profitable in a Bitcoinized world as it would be in a fiat world. Fiat makes it very inexpensive to exert political power or to confiscate property. Right. Right, right now, to steal property from people, all they have to do is hit control enter at the Federal Reserve and update <laughs> the U.S. dollar database. And they've robbed everyone just at a, yeah. a keystroke. Um, so. So it's kind of a rant there, but I wanted to get no, but I, I I understand it again. I totally understand what you're saying. Like I get it. But I think is that so so you could say this, it's like the gold is a tool for political power, but the political power manifests itself as as the capacity to 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 uh the capacity for force, the capacity for violence. Mm-hmm. And that has a reality in on its own. And so that's why I'm not so sure of the proposition you're saying, because like I said, the, the states aren't going to let this happen because they have guns. They have a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> like they have way more than we have and they have guns we don't know about. And they have weapons that are, they can fly above us and drop, explosions on us you know and and we can't do that like we can do none of that there's a i think there's a big unknown here though because we could equally be sitting in the 1500s looking at the printing press saying there's no way the church is going to let this thing run you know it's it's disrupting the monopoly on knowledge etc etc so there i have a high degree of confidence that institutional realities are reshaped by technological realities so, and the other piece to this maybe is that the state depends on the market, not the opposite. The market does not depend on the state. The state is the parasite. The market is the host. There's yeah, nothing. But to they st- don't think they don't think that. But it but it almost doesn't matter what they think at a certain point because there's no. If you destroy the market, there's nothing to steal. You've destroyed all the wealth. So then what? You're yeah, no, but they've done it. It has happened. Yeah. That's what I mean. A hundred years of of uh, of communist rule was a real thing and people yeah. starve, you know, and when they, and, and if they're talking about overpopulation, maybe they don't, maybe it doesn't bother them so much. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying it can't be very ugly in transition, but I think longer run, I just think human action is largely, it largely springs from incentives and the incentives will be, yeah. Away from coercion in the long run. So I want to let me ask you this. We talked about fractals fractals yeah. earlier. Is the marketplace a macrocosm of the individual mind? Because I I see in the marketplace human minds, we're interconnecting our consciousness, if you will, through prices, for instance. Like mm-hmm. I don't need to know that there was an earthquake in Chile that disrupted copper production. I just see the price of copper change yeah. and that changes my behavior, right? So we have this distributed computing system in the marketplace. I just wanted to get your read on it. Like, are, is it, are we, is that just a fractal reflection of the individual human mind? Um, 
I mean, it, yeah, it's a similar, it's a similar pattern because it, it's about, it's about value and it's about selection, right? There's a, there's a, there's a notion in which the market in itself will through, through what people want. So you can understand it as the same way that the same way that, 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 that your cells inside you exist, mm -hmm. you know, and they have their own reality, like the cell inside you doesn't care about your will. Like they don't know about it or they, it doesn't matter, but they, they are acting with, within, they're acting to a certain extent to their self-interest, you could say. Mm -hmm. And then that self-interest is coming together towards something higher. Now mm -hmm. there is a limit to that because cancer is an example of self-interest that destroys the system mm -hmm. right so it's like so so cancer is when the cells act so much in their own interest that they are they are unwitt unwittingly destroying their host and they don't realize it and so and so i think that you can understand the market as very very similar to a body mm -hmm. uh, with the possibility that it's very own it's very mechanisms can lead to its destruction mm. if if that self-interest becomes is out, is out of control and cancer is when the cells fail to self-destruct right it's, it's uncontrolled growth uncontrolled growth yeah and no yeah. self-replication yeah yeah i mean the, you know again when i talked to verveki about this the zombie mythology too he's argued that that's kind of the modern mythological symbol of the meaning crisis yeah um and we talked about zombie companies i don't know if you've ever heard this term no they're they are companies that are basically on central bank life support so they're loss producing they're they're not producing profit they're not satisfying wants in an economic way but because they have access to this the proceeds stolen by inflation and taxation they're kept alive and we had so why real, are they kept alive like for what reason government whim political power right they're paying the salaries of whoever like whoever owns it has access to the printing press and just says keep my company alive it's like it's a political thing basically really yeah no, i never heard yeah. this before so wow. it's it's cancerous in a way you're describing here is this is uncontrolled growth of organizations that should die like in, in a capitalistic world the company would bankrupt its capital would be reallocated into the marketplace to higher and better use Mm -hmm. the fiat mechanism prevents it prevents the is it autophagy is that the death of cell term i forget but um it autophagy self would mean self-eating is that that's what the word uh, would mean? um self-devouring autophagy it prevents companies from dissolving back into their capital and going back into the marketplace uh, through this fiat, keeps mechanism. them alive. It keeps them alive artificially through yes, through power and through yes. through, yeah. And they're called yeah. zombie companies. Like I didn't. It's not something I'm naming them. It's like that's what they're popularly known as. So interesting. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's interesting to think about that. Like, it's interesting to think about definitely the the problem of systems that are systems that that perpetuate themselves because they have a lot of power and then they perpetuate forms that have no connection, you know, mm -hmm. 
that happens. That definitely happens. Like you can imagine, uh, you know, I don't know, like the Chinese court, like overly ritualized, like everything is so ritualized that it's, it becomes just nothing even, nobody even knows what's going on anymore. Like it's not connected to reality or Mm -hmm. a good example is a calendar, right? You have a pattern of a calendar Mm -hmm. and then at some point the world slips underneath it. And then finally the, the pattern doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't connect to reality. It's like, you're celebrating this, but it's not like it's snowing outside and it's supposed to be fall. And it's like, it just doesn't, doesn't match. You have to let it die. Like you said, in order yeah. to, to bring, to bring in something new. Yeah. This creative destruction that's Darwinian and capitalistic at the same time. But when we interrupt that process, we get zombies, right? Zombie companies. Yeah. But it, there's also, but there always has to be, a balance between the two because the one of the the problems of the the creative destruction is that humans crave stability mm-hmm. so one of the one of the issues we're seeing is one of the things that driving us mad is also this constant change mm. you know and so it's like this this just this constant constant change and this wheel uh that people fall into um so i think that you you have to find that's why so for example it's like that's why you need, you just need the balance will, the balance will exist. And so there, so for example, there is no reason to come up with something better than a handshake. Mm-hmm. You could try and people probably maybe will, but at some point, like why, I, you know, there's, mm-hmm. you, you have to let also these forms. So there's something in, there's something in the, the problem of innovation or innovation as a, as a value in itself, which I think is a real problem. Like people are going to hate me for saying that, but I don't see innovation as a good. I see innovation as a neutral and in many ways as dangerous because it's you're, you're unleashing powers in the world that you don't know what they even are, mm. but you're constantly unleashing these powers uh, and you don't realize what they're doing. You know, and so, so it's like everybody was happy. Everybody was happy with tablets and phones, but now it's like your five-year-old spends five hours on TikTok and it's like, everybody's going crazy, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to, how to solve that. Uh, but I mean, it's just one example, but there are many examples, right? It's like the car is great. I love, I have a car. I love cars, but you know, a cars basically destroyed community hmm. because of cars. We don't have communities anymore. So we have suburbs Mm. with malls hmm. but we don't everything that created a tradition and so we so there's a way in which i don't i don't think that innovation is good in itself i wish there was more wisdom in innovation i wish i wish there were people I wish there were holy people that could ask the question of whether or not an innovation is worth the price or would be able to discern the cost of the innovation so for example like the COVID lockdowns are only possible because of technology. Mm-hmm. Like if COVID had happened a hundred years ago, nothing would have changed. Mm-hmm. Like things would have just continued on and, and, and then people would have tried to care for their sick, would have mourned their dead, but we wouldn't have changed the very nature of society, but we've done it because we can. Yeah. And so, so that's the issue. So like, for example, so, the same thing that is producing Bitcoin, the same drive or the same, like, 
how can I say the same spirit that's producing Bitcoin is also producing the COVID passport, right? The same system that produced, like the same thing that made the internet the like the great far west of freedom and expression is the same thing that's making the internet the greatest system of control that humanity has ever imagined. And so innovation, innovation is not, it's like a, just power. It's power. Yeah. And power, especially the more power, the more extreme its consequences will be. And so that's what the more we move towards a technocratic world, the more we're gonna we're going to vacillate between between kind of excessive libertarian freedom mm -hmm. and authoritarian, insane authoritarian control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my estimation, the line we're walking is we want to harness more power. That's the point of innovation and economization. But we want to have systems where individuals are maximally resistant to the willpower of others. We don't want these arbitrary impositions of willpower by one group onto another. That's how that's where we get into theft and violence and all of these other things. So I like your point on, you know, COVID lockdowns not being possible 100 years ago, but we could equally say they're not possible without fiat currency either. You could not have locked people in their homes uh, without recourse to this printing press. Yeah, you just it's like do a weird it. thing that they did. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, so, but I, I want to I want to take on what you said in terms of the idea. Like, I think that this again is a is a problem. Like, so what you said, like when you said that you want to preserve the individual from coercion, you know, mm -hmm. and so I think that. I, I I have to be honest, like, I think that that's wrong. Like, I don't, I think that this is one of the issues of being human is that we're not individuals. We, we exist in communities. We exist in relationships. Human beings are social. We, we, we find meaning in others. Um, and we find purpose in others. And so this, the sadly, the same thing that makes us families is that which makes us embody violence towards others. The, the, the characteristics which create our communities are the same characteristics which bring about violence and coercion. And so this is like the, this is the big problem. Like this is the big, if you, I don't know if you've read a bit of René Girard, uh, René Girard, I guess you say in English. I so yeah, yeah I, I imagine I'm you're interested it. in it. Yeah, I've read half of Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, and it's interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting in, in, in the sense of understanding that, of understanding that the the mechanisms of society, you know, are the ones that spawn uh, violence, and so we're in like a catch twenty two, we're in a, we're in a bind, yeah, because because we don't have we need ways to manifest our unity without the other thing. But like the idea of just protecting the individual from, from coercion is going to bring about fragmentation and meaninglessness and people are going to fall into despair because we don't, we don't exist alone. Well, okay. we, we need common, common identities and common purposes or else, we're, or, or else we, we feel 
lost. Yes. Okay. So on Gerard's book, and I, I've only read half of it again, but I believe he makes the point that by being able to engage in self-reflection on this idea of mimesis that he's describing, that's flown through humanity forever, basically, that we could establish the ability to transcend it. Like we're not hopelessly engaged in this victimage mechanism that he describes till the end of time. Like we could actually transcend it. Um, we wouldn't transcend it towards individualism. Like I think he would believe we would transcend it towards something like uh, something like uh, a, a community that would exist in, in love, like in true love, which right. would be a kind of self-sacrifice to avoid the, the scapegoat sacrifice or the scapegoat mechanism. So I'd love to drill into that love, actually. So we have eros, philia, and agape, right? Eros, consumptive love, philia, reciprocal love between friends or romantic partner. And then agape is like love from parent to child. Um, the, and maybe this is just a naive, optimistic, Bitcoin or libertarian view, but uh, somewhat maybe parallels for Vicky's idea of having a neo religion that's, you know, under a, a new canopy, if you will. But could we not indeed organize ourselves under a canopy of, say, reducing economic scarcity or increasing material abundance? And, and the connection to love here, I think, is interesting because economics lets us consume more right we produce more so we can consume more so that's eros it also as we accumulate wealth we are more free right i'm not as beholden to the scarcities of nature i have accumulated capital and wealth i can spend my time as i see fit which presumably would be in relationship right friendship romantic relationship um whatever and then the agape piece is like, if you, you know, the more wealth we create, the more kids we can have basically. And you've right, seen that's that. Not, that's not what you're saying is just not absolutely untrue in the sense that maybe even though you disagree with the fiat system, right? The fiat system has created more wealth than any system in the history of humanity it's has not created. The, it's not the fiat that's doing the wealth creation though. This well, whatever like, it is, we live in a world where there's more wealth that has ever existed. It's globalization. Right? And in that world, yeah. what we have is one, people having less children, two, people feeling anxious, depressed on medication. People have lost meaning. They're wandering about, you know, and so it's like, it's doing the opposite of what you're saying. It has done the opposite of what you're saying. Like the wealth is one of the reasons for the meaning crisis. Like, I'm not saying we should be, I'm not saying we should be poor and I don't want to be poor. Yeah. Like, but I'm saying that wealth is one of the reasons of the meaning crisis because in a, in a, in a society where wealth is not so available, then we are completely interdependent and therefore we have to rely on each other in order to survive. And therefore our meaning comes from true purpose. But if you, if you, like we have made, like I would say that in the last few centuries, we have made wealth accumulation the, the first goal of our societies. And it's brought us into nihilism and, 
and and uh yeah i think it's difficult to disentangle like we could say that wealth is a cause but the central bank of england was founded in 1694 so it's very hard to disentangle the wealth versus the coercion that's intrinsic to all these economic systems people have been getting robbed all the time whether they understand it or not people feel it so but do you do you think that the that do you think that the young 20 something year old guy who now can't meet a girl anymore who can't be in a relationship because because of lockdowns you no know, not just because of lockdowns but because of this weird sexual marketplace that's set up you know where he's maybe not that good looking he's just a regular guy he can't find someone he's online all the time he's whatever he's and so it's like that that is that has been caused by that has been caused by by wealth like that that is really it's it's like it's it's that you don't have to do anything you're not you're i so like let's say my great grand my grandmother like my grandmother lived in a village and she had uh you know she had um she was growing she would grow vegetables and she would can and then she was part of a group called the sisters of isabel they were all the women of the village that would kind of work together and be attentive to like which children like if there's a kid that you can see is in trouble like they get involved and they're nosy and it's annoying but they're also kind of holding the community together yeah. there's all that messiness of like an actual real community uh and that's and then nobody was committing suicide nobody was on antidepressants yeah nobody was you know it's like it just wasn't part of the the world well I'm not, I don't claim to have a, a knowledge about what tools like Tinder or social media are doing to us because I, I do believe this, and this gets back to our earlier yeah. point that I do believe that the market is a fractal of the mind and they're in relation with one another. So when we change the mechanisms that intermediate that relationship, you're, you're changing the mind, right? We're you're changing mm -hmm. the market, changing the mind. So I agree that there's a feedback there, but I guess my my overall point would be that getting the coercive elements out would only be healthy for the mind. And and by the way, this is not just theoretical because a lot of the things you're describing, drug abuse, obesity is another one, right? That's been a big problem in the U.S. Um, a couple of things. One, there's a great website. WTF happened in 1971.com, and it shows this whole gamut of socioeconomic data skewing really bad after 1971. So basically once we went off the gold standard, we had more centralization, more opiate addiction, more obesity, more debt, like all these deleterious socioeconomic consequences. And when you, there are Bitcoiners today that are actually people that have engaged very deeply with this money and started to like build their life around it. A lot of, a lot of people have very positive personal transformations. People are becoming more fit, more focused on health, more focused on family, community, all these things. So I think there is this, this feedback relationship. We're focused on, because focused on fitness and focused on health and focused on community are not the same. Well, I'm saying so that- you, 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 they, So you see Bitcoiners being more focused on community? Like they, real community, I don't mean adopt, like- They adopt longer time horizons and i think that is at least contributed to 
by interacting with the money that allows you to plan over longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. If you hold Bitcoin, you know you're, you're holding money that can't be stolen from you, right? You're, you're sort of exiting that feedback loop. If you're in the fiat, if you're in a fiat world, you can't, you're, you're, the agent and arena relationship has been so disturbed, right? Because you're being robbed by the market, whether you know it or not, it's happening. It's forcing you then to take more risk or eat shittier food or whatever the thing is. But just by like extricating yourself from that feedback loop into another one, it seems to be having an impact on people's personal life choices, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. skewing a, a more positive direction. So I, my general thesis is, is there's a deep relationship between, you know, man and tool or creator and created. And I think when you inject corruption, coercion, theft oh, for in, sure. into money, it's warping. No, I think I think you're right. I think you're I think you're totally right. But I, I do think that you might be you might be putting too much stock into that as a as a cause, let's say. But I agree. I agree that hmm. that it's clear that the you know that the 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 system like that, but I like I said, I agree that the fiat system is doing what it's doing, but I think that I could have someone who is involved in Bitcoin for reasons of greed and the, a person and the people who are doing those things are doing it for reasons of greed um, and give the guy who has Bitcoin the power and he'll just do the same. He might not do it with Bitcoin, but he'll do it with other things. He'll do it with other means of coercion and other means of, because it's not about it's about human nature and about yeah. our ultimate purposes. So I actually agree with that with the caveat that in a bitcoin world it wouldn't concentrate as much power into so few hands. And even if you're the guy that owns the most bitcoin in the world, you're whoever, you own a million, you're Satoshi, you own a million bitcoin. Not even a Satoshi can twist the rules against others in that system. And that's what's being done now is that these rules just change all the time, right? How many dollars are in existence? How many yeah, will be yeah, in existence? Who's profiting? Yeah. It's like, you want to drive someone insane in a game, just change the rules all the time. And when you give one entity or one individual the power to make those rules, they have the power to win in perpetuity. So I think it, yeah. it, it overly concentrates power into too few hands. And that's what corrupts human nature. So at least in a Bitcoin world, I'm not saying people would be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they would be restrained against that, that, co that noxious concentration of power. I don't see it. Like, I don't see it because I don't think, because also value, like I said, I think, I think it's also because I don't maybe see value the same way that you do. And even in terms of like a uh, trade value mm -hmm. is that, the things in the world, like the, the 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 guns and the tanks and the planes and the the police cars, you know, and the communication systems and all of these things, these things exist, uh, and they whether there would be a Bitcoin world or not a Bitcoin world, those things would just fall into the hands of different people. Like if it was a Bitcoin world, then those guns and those police cars would fall into the hands of those that maybe had the most Bitcoin. And then they would set up ways 
then they would just say, give me, if you don't give me so many Bitcoin a month, it's, it'll be a protection racket just the way it is for now. And then you'd have Bitcoin taxes paid to the Bitcoin billionaire instead of paying money to the, to the guy. And so you would have a, a, the same system of coercion would set itself up. There'd be no way around it. Well, in a Bitcoin world, though, you can't forcibly, again, there's a lot of, have you custodied it properly? Have you taken it off exchange, et cetera? But assuming market actors would do that over time, you couldn't do that, actually. You couldn't say, give me the Bitcoin or else. I mean, you could. Yeah, you just put them in jail until no. they give you the Bitcoin. Well, you can, but it, there's no way to ever forcibly take the Bitcoin. So in the, the world today, you put them in jail and then you seize their assets. Yeah, that's right. I right? agree. And you can't I agree. Stop. But the, the coercion wouldn't no change. Like before there was fiat, they would, if you owed money to the state, they would put you in jail until someone paid the, the, the bill for you before there was fiat. Bitcoin goes back that direction, actually, is you'll have more of a debtor prison because yeah. there's no way to, to enforce on your assets. Yeah, they can't just seize. For sure, this the madness of being able to seize your assets is. I agree that it's crazy. I don't. Yes. I don't. I think that it's definitely a, a. People don't realize how. How crazy it is! Like they they just take for granted this is something that should be able to be to happen. They don't realize what it means. What it means, how you perceive what it means about your perception of how the world works and what the state no. is. If you think that it's normal that the state can seize your assets, I mean, that's nuts. So, so that's maybe a good way to look at it is the state is the systemized predation of property, basically. They're just taxing and stealing all the time. It seems somewhat intuitive to me that over time, as people realize that and realize there's another option, like you're telling me I can hold a money that you can steal from me or a money that you can't, that the average of human action will tend towards the one that can't be stolen. I mean, I guess it, I, I, you're very hopeful. I don't think so. Just because systems that aren't fiat have existed for thousands and thousands of years and the state is was no less, uh, they were maybe with less, with less uh, reach. So now the state has more reach, that's for sure. Right, the, 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 the state has more reach than any other state has ever yeah. had. Yeah. Uh, but just through technology, you know, not yeah. just via fiat in general through technology. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. Look, I. But gold too. I mean, gold invited violence, right? Yeah. You bomb a city and then the gold's still there. So. Yeah, you take the gold. Yeah. You don't need to negotiate with the guy. You just need to kill the guy and take his gold. Bitcoin's different. You can't just kill the guy and take his Bitcoin. You got to negotiate. No, but you can, so. you can, you can kill the guy and take his stuff. And then you have more yeah. you have more bitcoin if you have their stuff because it's not like bitcoin exists in a vacuum right it's like if i go if i if i bomb if i bomb your city and then i i take your stuff then i have more, more bitcoin i mean i have more value i have more i have more stuff yes presumably so there's no you can steal stuff still i mean that doesn't change <laughs> but, but at least we have money that can't be stolen so i have a question though like i have a question yeah. like in terms of bitcoin so one of the problems that seems that bitcoin is bringing about is that um so let's say you have your keys and then i kill you and then your key vanishes or i kill you with like someone kills whatever is holding the keys and so that means that that bitcoin 
where like it just stays there, right? It becomes like it just there. Well, it's got it's lost Bitcoin at that point. So don't you think that let's say over a certain amount of time that there there will be more and more lost Bitcoin, wouldn't there? Uh, there should be more, but as Bitcoin gets more expensive, people are more incentivized to not lose it. Like even right yeah. now, you kill me, I don't lose. I lose my Bitcoin, but my family does not. You know, right. I have it properly custodied and in a succession protocol that that's what will happen. Yeah. If someone doesn't have that, then yeah, their Bitcoin could be lost. But what that effectively does is just concentrate more economic energy into the remaining Bitcoin. So it's like a, it's like a contribution to everyone else. If I just burn mm. my if you card, burn a thousand Bitcoin, you've anti-diluted everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's like the opposite of fiat, right? When you expand the fiat supply, you're diluting everyone but this would be an anti-dilutive. Yeah, so so there could be incentive to eliminate my Bitcoin opponents somehow. Yes. Uh, if it's widely held, and again, this kind of gets back to the state and market thing. It's like you might have a slight incentive to kill the guy that's holding a thousand Bitcoin, not because you'll get the thousand Bitcoin, but because that would be anti-dilutive to you and everyone else in the Bitcoin network. But again, cost benefit, which one's better? Killing the guy to get this small marginal anti-dilutive contribution or trading and doing something productive with the guy and not running the risk of jail or enforcement, whatever risk you're taking in killing him. Yeah, but that's true of any like any violent activity, right? It's like I'm not a I'm not a tyrant. Like I don't totally understand what motivates people to risk their life to like go to another city and 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 to siege it and and set up a siege yeah. and basically risk their lives in order to get stuff. Like I don't. Well, I don't it's totally very, very different than gold. Like we just gave yeah. the example of gold, where am I going to take the risk to kill the guy if there's this huge bonanza of gold? Yeah, may, I mean. Not me, but a, anyone yeah. running the yeah. calculus yeah. is going to be like, okay, I get a, 10 tons of gold if I kill this guy. Yeah. But that cost to benefit ratio is way different on a Bitcoin standard. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's dissuading to violence overall. Right. There's a long literature on this too. It's not. Yeah. This, yeah. This is prior to Bitcoin. Uh, I can send you a paper. It's the economics of organized violence, frankly. Mm-hmm. And as our ability to project force across a distance has changed, our civilization has reflected those changes. So for a long time, for instance, the knight on horseback was the law of the land, right? Yeah. A knight gets on a horse. He can move swiftly across terrain. He can kill 50 peasants. One knight can take on 50 peasants, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that was enabled by the stirrup, by the way, because before the stirrup, the knight couldn't get on the horse, so he didn't have mobility. But then what happens, you know, so the knight's the law of the land, but then with the invention of gunpowder, all of a sudden one peasant can take out a knight from 200 yards. And then this leads to like the collapse of feudalism (laughs) because the knights can't enforce anymore. So it's these little, I think there's a, the economics of violence, how we project willpower onto one another is largely determinant of how society is shaped. Because now, now, like someone can send a drone to your house and kill you mm-hmm. and not even have to move. 
Yeah. Send a send one of those nice little Boston. Uh, we've been seeing them now, the Boston Dynamics robots. Everybody knew where it was going, and now we saw them with fitted with, uh, you know, with with weapons. And so, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, the cost, like, all of a sudden, the cost of killing someone goes down if you have a lot of a lot of power. Yeah, the cost can go down, but we can also decrease the benefit with Bitcoin. Yeah, you can take the benefit to zero effectively, um, or not zero, but you're not stealing their money. I guess is the punchline, right? And historically, that's been a big carrot for violence. So yeah, I mean, I hear you on a lot of this, but like, where are you then? You know, I mean, you said so, it. We're headed towards a catastrophe. Yeah, it's like we need to do something about it, or do we just sit here and just? No, I don't. I agree. I don't think so. I think that my like, if you want to see it, like my aim has been rather towards meaning. And so and so I think that the that which will survive the breakdown will rather be communities of, of true communities of meaning. And so I think that that's what I've been actually working towards rather than saying I'm going to create the physical capacity to survive this, uh, I've been mostly working towards the other side, which is creating enough people, the vision of a higher purpose mm. in order to build some kind of, some kind of arc. But in a certain manner, you kind of, you probably need something like both, you know, uh, because, but I, it's like, I'm not totally sure. I, so for example, like, let's say, I think so here's a good example. Like I think the Amish are way more resistance resistant to fragility than Bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they have common purpose, common community. They have they have uh, goals, they under they know each other, they trust each other, and so they they will be able to survive any crash because they're just they're, they're already kind of working together. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's more of an image of what I think could possibly um, survive this would be maybe kind of those kind of deliberate communities or something like that. Like mm-hmm. Rod Rare talks about that a lot, the idea of just being more deliberate about your network in terms of meaning and purpose and, and, and common, common, common identity. Um, so I think that that's more... I think that that's that's probably a better solution than a technical one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm very much. I grew up in Tennessee originally, and it's these freedom-loving parts of the country, which have much more of a Christian foundation, seem mm-hmm. to be doing a lot better throughout all this yeah. COVID nonsense. Yeah, for sure. And so I agree that. You know, Christianity is showing its value to me a lot recently in the past, uh, you know, whatever, 18 months. But I think you need the technical side too to stand up to digital utopia or dystopianism. Mm. You've got to have, you have to use money in the world, right? You're never going to have to stop doing that. Uh, to be able to use a money that the state cannot control, I think is re- a really important way to hold them accountable yeah if they have money that they can just print ad infinitum or that they can turn off your money when you say something bad it's like 
even the Amish don't stand a chance against that. Now the Amish with Bitcoin, I think that's your ideal force, right? <laughs> right? Self-sufficient people with the strongest. <laughs> if you could just convince the Amish to use Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> then they would be they would be like a rock solid. I, I just see the, the image of that is hilarious to me. It's like it's so it's such a great image. Uh, I mean, you have a you have a point. Like I, I think you have a point in the sense that that there is there is there is not being like there is a desire not to be naive like there's a reality of trying not to be naive about what's kind of coming and 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 the mechanism but i think but i think that there's a so for example like let's say to me like this is i I just keep thinking about these like practical examples like so you have bitcoin and then things go off things go things become wonky Mm -hmm. and then you you know, you're not allowed to fly unless you are, you have an interior passport of some kind and you're just not allowed. And so you're stuck, right? You're there, you're, you're wherever you are. And at some point, like, what is your Bitcoin going to do? Like, what are you going to be able to do with it? Because you, so, so, so if you don't have a, a way of transforming it into food, I mean, not just food, but like just the things that we need. It seems like that, like that's what that's all. That's always kind of the one one of the things that I struggle to understand is how in a in a real crisis, how you turn Bitcoin into stuff, especially in a in an authoritarian kind of uh, situation where where the technology is used to to control you. Yeah, well, assuming that the dollar still works in this environment, you yeah. you know, Bitcoin today is ten billion dollars a day of trading volume. So that's dollars to Bitcoin. Yeah, is twenty four by seven liquid. You can always sell it or borrow against it, and then, you know, if you're being really creative you can go onto the dark web and you can buy anything you want. You can buy a suitcase full of cash. You can buy food, you can buy weapons, you know? So I guess it depends on the, the devils in the details, so to speak about what type of authoritarianism is this? Is the internet on? Is it not? Is it? Yeah. Um, But it gives you a lot of resistance to the willpower of others and a lot of options. You know, that's essentially what money is, right? It's just, pure optionality on the market. You can go and trade mm-hmm. for anything. So, um, so I have a question for you too. Like yeah. one of the things you said in the in our last conversation was you said it's like Bitcoin and then everything else is, is trash, whatever. Uh, and so I struggle, I, I'm cause I'm, for some reason that really resonated with me. And I was like, why, let's say why, is everything else uh, trash compared, like in in terms of Bitcoin? So I don't like to say that. I mean, I'll, there's a lot of trash out there, but the way I would actually define it is that Bitcoin is the internet. So the internet is this stack of open source protocols for moving information. You know, HTTP, TCP/IP, etc. 
Bitcoin is just kind of like the latest layer to that stack. It's just an open source protocol for moving economic value. So I think Bitcoin like is just an evolution of the internet, pretty much. All of the other alternative crypto assets have basically done a copy paste of Bitcoin's code to either try and compete with it directly as money or to use it uh, to address some other market niche. And so I consider that whole, all of the alternative crypto assets as liquid venture capital Basically, you know, probably 99.9% will fail as is the failure rate in traditional venture capital, but maybe some of it succeeds. Like, I, I mean, the verdict's still out for me on that. Okay. Um, but on a risk adjusted basis, it's like, all you need to do is hold Bitcoin and trust that it will continue doing what it has been doing perfectly for 13 years and it continues to succeed. It doesn't yeah. need to solve any complex computer science it just needs to do what it's doing, which is a new block every 10 minutes and a hard cap of 21 million. And it keeps eating other, you can think about it in rate of change terms, right? We're creating more and more dollars exponentially. We're creating less and less Bitcoin exponentially. So yeah. when you price Bitcoin in terms of dollars, this is the joke in Bitcoin, number go up. <laughs> you can't even, yeah. You can't really stop it at all unless you're going to somehow stop central banks from printing money, which is to say stop them from robbing people, which is to say make them productive and or moral. None of that's ever mm -hmm. going to happen. So they're going to keep printing money. And Bitcoin is just like an insurance policy on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, then my other question, like this is, I'm being very selfish here because it's like I'm on your time. But <laughs> so my other question is. So one of the things people have been pushing me to do is NFTs. Like that's everybody's saying, do an NFT, NFT, NFT. Uh, and at first I was like, I don't even know what that is, right? I didn't know yeah. what that is. Uh, do you think that that's something that's, le that's legitimately value creating or do you just think it's just? Uh, I will condition it with saying that I haven't done a deep dive on it, but um, these have been around for a long time. The concept of NFT, it just recently got popular in this bull market. And the one thing I would caution against is every time there's a Bitcoin bull market, there's just a lot of hype and hysteria about different things. You know, in 2017, mm -hmm. it was the ICO. It's like, oh, just launch your own token and raise $10 million in 10 minutes and, you know, whatever. And the NFT craze, I think, is the latest uh, instantiation of that. People are just... Because one of the, the powerful things about Bitcoin is it is just code. You can copy and paste it and launch... Peugeot coin in 10 minutes on Ethereum. Yeah. If you can convince enough people to buy that coin by whatever means necessary, then you could, you could be very rich all of a sudden. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost, whereas central banking had been the most prestigious, it's the most prestigious thing in the world to own a share in a central bank because you are a shareholder in an institution that never loses money. It just, yeah. it violently monopolizes money to make profit forever. But now that power has basically been decentralized to anyone through, you know, call it blockchain technology, I guess. Anyone can print money. Yeah. So you have these crazes, people just going crazy trying to print money. And But in that world, Bitcoin wins, right? In that world where everyone can print money, people are going to choose to hold the money nobody can print. Because it's the one money that can't be diluted. So it's like for the same reasons gold came to be, that it was just the asset most immune to politics and opinion. I think that's why Bitcoin wins as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I'm definitely, 
I'm not at the same spot that I was when I talked to you last time. Like I'm definitely thinking about it a little differently and also uh, realizing that, how can I say this? Realizing that, uh, that there is a certain amount of value there that I hadn't considered, like in, in terms of the whole proof of work thing, but then also understanding as we're moving towards digital fiat uh, currency, yeah. Like, yeah, the, the horizon is, is, is frightening and there aren't a lot of um, ways to palliate that. And for sure, at least for now, it seems like some, some, uh, some Bitcoin and some of the safer cryptos are a way, at least in the meantime, to kind of have some options, let's say, when that starts to hit. Let me ask you this. Are you, and we can, we can close on this if you like. Yeah. Property rights... I'm listening to the work of Peterson, you know, roughly paraphrasing here. So don't, I could be wrong, but he's saying that at least Christianity sort of laid the bedrock on which we built Western civilization. A large piece of that being property rights, you know, in, in the, in the modern sense that what, what you buy, you own, right. And you have recourse to protect that asset. What is the connection between Christianity and property rights, if any? I, um, I think that I think that it's how can I say this? I think that Jordan is taking that mostly from mostly from the Enlightenment. I think more than from Christianity or just from a movement towards individualism, um, and so I. I think that there's like Jordan, Jordan definitely has a kind of individualism to, to himself, you know, mm-hmm. for all the good aspects of that and some of the more difficult aspects of that. And so I think that in a, in a Christian world, there's a sense in which I think that property is, is actually probably way more hierarchical. Like it just, it actually, it depends where, but for sure, like in the West, let's say in the medieval West, you know, it was basically the idea that in theory, it's mm-hmm. just in theory, but in theory, the king owns everything, mm-hmm. but he doesn't in practice because he has no reach. Like that's mm-hmm. the problem. That's the, that's the problem that I talk about. So in order to own everything, he has to al- allocate ownership down the hierarchy in order to hold his position. And then that happens fractally. And so the nobles then will allocate property lower down to other nobles, which will continue to do so until you come to the peasants. And then the peasants, they were, they didn't own the land, but they were, uh, they were, how can I say they, they were attached to the land. Mm-hmm. So they, they weren't, they didn't own it, but they weren't, they, the, 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 the feudal lords weren't allowed to chase them away from the land. Mm-hmm. So it's like they, there was a responsibility all the way down in terms of ownership. Uh, and so I think that that's, that, is, and that was at least the Western medieval way, the Western Christian way of, of understanding property. Um, but it's also because to a certain extent, like the idea of property as something, something absolute is, I don't think it's just not a Christian. Mm. I don't think it's a Christian value. Um, I mean, obviously, taking a, taking property from people is wrong. Like it's evil to steal. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that we have this like absolute like 
hold on property. I don't, I don't see it, you know? Mm. I mean, I might be wrong. I might be totally off here because I'm not, it's, it's actually honestly not the kind of thing that I think about so much, but I might be wrong. Yeah. Because well, the other thing about, I mean, maybe the better question is to ask how, what is freedom in the, the Christian tradition? Because property is really just an expression of your freedom, right? Like you've taken your self-ownership, combined it with something to create value, and then you own it. Um, but I think that that's also the issue is like freedom. Christian, I don't think Christianity really understands freedom that way mm. because it's like the guy, the people who own things, they, they become slaves to those things as well. Mm. We see it all the time. People become slaves by a, like the, the guy that buys a boat, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> he comes a slave to their boat. And you, they don't even realize it, but at some point you realize like, dude, you're serving that boat basically. Uh, but, and we become slave to our things all the time. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying, I don't think Christians tend to tend to understand it that way. It's like, we, we understand freedom as this rather as mostly this, this movement towards virtue rather than mm-hmm. like a movement towards stuff. But there's nothing wrong with owning stuff. Like I don't have, I'm, I'd be careful. Like people are going to think I'm some weird, like I think owning stuff is fine. And I think that owning land is fine. And I, and obviously I own things and I, I think it's great that we are allowed to, I don't, I wouldn't want to, to uh, never want to give that away, you know, for something like a communist or a fascist, fascistic state, Yeah. Uh, you know, but I don't, to say that, that, that the way we understand ownership is like a deeply Christian thing is eh, I'm not so sure, but I don't mm. see another alternative in the, in our, in the system we have now, like mm. because of the, because of the problem of, of power and reach, like the state has so much reach that like the idea that the King would own everything would be the worst thing for us. Can you imagine like, the idea that some monarch owns everything, but then they can also basically record you with AI and know everything you're saying. And, you know, like, it would be insane. It would be so bad that it would it'd be the worst thing ever. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this is another useful framing is that if your t- tax rate as an individual is 100%, then you are a slave, right? You are living in Soviet Russia or whatever. And anywhere we are on that spectrum, it's not like we have this improper dichotomy between communism and U.S democracy or capitalism, whatever we want to call it, they're really much more alike than they are different. They're just two different. Especially as we move in time, like yes. the state is becoming more and more inv- you know, invasive. Yes. Like in Canada, it's like my tax rate is, is crazy because it's not only that I pay between 30 and 50% tax, but then I also pay 15% sales tax and I pay property taxes. And it's like, If you add that up, like the percentage of taxes that I pay is completely insane. So that's my point is that we're the state move because, again, it's just a business trying to increase its revenue. So it wants to increase taxes. So it moves people away from zero percent tax closer to 100 percent. So I I think the state is just a failed organizational model. This whole idea of taxation and coercion, I just don't think works. It's not sustainable. I mean, I, I don't see, I, I get it. I don't, I sadly have to say that I don't think there's an alternative, at least, at least at this point, because, mm. because 
as soon as you, as soon as people come together, then the power dy dynamics end up manifesting themselves. And so you could maybe resist that in smaller communities, but you can see it like these small communities, people have been trying to create smaller communities since the sixties mm -hmm. and they all fail. You know, mm -hmm. everybody fails except for the religious ones, mm -hmm. like the Amish, you know, they're, they, they, the, the Mennonites and the Amish have like, if you maybe study, we could study them and try to see what mechanisms do they set up to prevent coercion in mm -hmm. their society. Because there, there are Mennonite communities, for example, that have now existed for centuries. Hmm. And, and they, they are pacifists, which means that they actually don't, they don't actually don't use coercion in their system at all, but they, hmm. they, they're still there. I mean, that'd be super interesting to study that. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. If I may ask you one more yeah. quick question. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Honest weights Honest. and measures. What what are they? Why are they important? What does Christianity have to say about them? Like why we need honest weights of measurement? I mean, that's also yeah. just about lying, right? It's just about telling the truth. Mm. And so people who don't have honest weights and measures obviously have a have a um they have another intention, right? They they have an intention. There's mm. a reason why they're doing that. And so like for sure, you're right. Like if you're applying that to fiat mm -hmm. and inflation, you're totally right. That that there is something, there's definitely something deeply dishonest um, about the manner in which, in manner in which we understand value and the manner in which value is constantly changing under our feet, you know, through political power in order to keep us running on that wheel, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that it again doesn't seem possible to keep people cohered together in any sustainable way unless there are standard protocols that can't be corrupted, you know? Mm. So what do you think of so tell me I mean I don't want to cause conflict between you and someone else, but like so so one of the things that that because one of the problems of your of the Bitcoin is that the networks like are owned by people who don't necessarily want what you want right and so it's like the actual wires and wi-fi signals and, mm -hmm. and, and you know 5g towers they, they they you know at some point there could come a moment when those people don't want you right or, the, or they don't mm -hmm. want you yeah. you know and so do you think that at some point you would have to create alternative networks like physical networks in order to host bitcoin or it's Physical internet, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I There are ways to mask things that are going on. So you can, and it's not completely dependent on the internet, but let's just say that the internet makes it radically more useful. Like clearly, as I said earlier, Bitcoin is the internet. So it gets a lot of value from the globalized network that we call the internet. Um, it's not... There are ways to mask the mining. There are ways to mask your transactions. There are ways to mask you running a full node. So I think, again, as we said about the more money the state prints, the more demand they're creating for inflation-resistant money, I think the same is true for surveillance and censorship. The more surveillance and censorship the state engages in, 
the more you're going to see people move towards censorship resistant media um, mm-hmm. or surveillance resistant media. And, you know, one anecdotal point here is when Trump got canceled off Twitter, what, what was that? Six months ago, maybe roughly uh, maybe sooner than that. The next week, 25 million people signed up for the encrypted messaging service, Telegram. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the state or not even state in this case, Twitter, but the clamp on one guy. And what happened? You know, people rushed into this censorship resistant alternative. So that's how that's how I see it unfolding. It's kind of like a cat and mouse game that the harder Mm -hmm. a censor tries to squeeze or stamp out somebody, the more demand they're creating for these alternative channels. Hmm. Um, and you know, in that way, I think the open network just wins eventually. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the reason we have internet instead of intranets today, by the way, do you remember intranets? Yeah. 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 They're all super, you know, every corporation, we don't need the internet. We're just going to do our own thing and blah. And like all that shit's gone. They just yeah. got out competed by the open network. I think Bitcoin's the same. It's open hmm. network money out competing closed network fiat currency. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, 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 like I said, I'm still listening. Like I'm still watching, and I'm still thinking, and I'm still, and I'm moving a little bit. You know, not super fast, but I'm, I'm uh, considering everything. So you know, we wrote a book for, titled sorry? "Thank God for Bitcoin." Did I tell you that? No, you wrote a book. Yeah, well, myself with a number of other co-authors. So there's eight of us okay. total. Um, I'd love to send you a copy of it. Actually. Sure. It's a very easy yeah, read. It. It's like a two-hour read, and it goes through the whole history of money and why Bitcoin. So, Cool. Yeah, um, I'd like to see it. Definitely. Well, Jonathan, thank you for doing this. It's been a long time coming. Would you I'm like learning, to- so it's, it's, it's good to have – it's good that you want to actually bounce this stuff off of me. So it's forcing me to like to think about it. So I'm happy about that. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm learning a lot from you as well. I really enjoy your show. Um, do you want to let my audience know where they can find you? Uh, so on YouTube, Jonathan Peugeot, um, that's where I, that's where I am. Mostly you can find my website, the symbolic The big thing that's happening right now is I'm actually crowdfunding, uh, a book that I, that my, my brother Matsu, who wrote language of creation. And I wrote a fictional story about, it's like a graphic novel about, uh, dealing with a lot of the problems that we're dealing with in terms of monsters and, the problem with the exception and the problem of like tyrannical systems, but in a, in a really like an, an adventure story form, it's not theory at all. So people can check that out. It's called God's dog. If they're interested in that kind of stuff. So. Awesome. Yeah. Your last name is P A G E A U. Correct. Yes, exactly. Just for my audio listeners. Okay. <laughs> Jonathan. Thank you, man. I really, really enjoy the symbolic perspective on the world and i think it's something that's notably absent from most people's mind but it seems really essential you know so thank you for the work you're doing